right, the sparking of that joint, let's make it official. Hi, everybody. Hey. Oh, hi, hi. We're lighting up here. This is Swami and Nikki. Welcome to Radio Free Earth. Thank, Thank you. you. We're uh, glad to be here. I'd like to start with uh, introducing yourself, Nikki, while Swami lights up. Yeah, because he's busy. I'm, <laughs> I'm Nikki, and I am Swami's other half. Um, My we, other three quarters, actually. <laughs> three you know, quarters, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And... Um, yeah, one of the founders of Swami Select brand of cannabis, and much more. I'm basically an old flower child grown up and still a flower child at heart forever. Awesome. Oh, really? Back in the 60s? Well, you, you knew me then. Swami I knew, knew her, me I in knew 1969 she, yeah. we met. I wow. met her when she was yeah. 14. It was strictly 14. okay. No, okay, no, it was fine. And how old are you? I, I'm 12 years older than she is. Oh, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. He was cool. Ah! He was a cool older hippie. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. so she was a flower child. So you were grow you were growing up in San Francisco. I grew up born and raised at the right time in the right place. Cool. Yeah. And then how did you and you I know are from the East Coast, New yeah, Jersey, yeah. right? Well, New Jersey's where I grew up, yeah. Okay. And then uh, <coughs> uh, you know, after I went to college and so on, I was at the University of Wisconsin and I just decided I needed to come out to visit San Francisco because it was nineteen sixty seven and it was a summer of love, and they said, put some flowers in your hair and go to San Francisco, right? So I did. Okay. And, how, and you were? I, well, I was, uh, what, 20, well, 67, I would have been 24. Okay. Right? And wow. she would have been. Uh, well, you didn't meet me in 67. No, I didn't meet you in 67. No. Right, right, right. I was, I was still too young to and go And so to where did you all meet? Uh, we met in Washington Square Park in North Beach. Oh, Cause, wow. Because, you know, what happened, not a lot of people know this, but the hippie thing, you know, Hate Street was totally happening. And then, like, towards the end of 67, you know, they called it the death of the hippie. And it just, um, there's a whole parade and everything. And it got funky on Hate Street, like the wrong drugs came in, the wrong kind of scene. Do you know about that, about who brought them? No. Well, a couple things happened. The the city decided it didn't want Hate Street to be the center of things. So they did a couple things. They they made it a one-way street down through the hate. They started doing all kind of construction. To, uh, digging it up, okay. and they put these mercury vapor lamps all over the thing, so they completely the changed ones. the whole. Yeah, the orange one, the whole vibe of the whole thing changed. Oh, and they just tried to say, no, but you know, you're not wanted here in a way, right? right. But who, who brought in the bad drugs? Who so, do you know? So uh, there's a gentleman named Tom O'Neill. He's got uh-huh. a book called Chaos. Okay, I think it's, I've heard of that. He started writing an article for Vanity Fair about Charles Manson. And it turned into. A, are you passing? Or is yeah, Swami, you have to remember to share. Oh, I, I'm passing. Okay. He spaces no, he out. doesn't have to pass it. No, he should. That's why I started rolling my own drink. No, but <laughs> I, here, I've been kind of, uh, you know, because of COVID, I kind of got into the habit of, uh, of, of keeping it to myself. And then it certainly became my dose, right? So, you know, I just sort of like, you know, really want to smoke the whole thing. <laughs> okay, so what? Charles Manson brought the drugs to the hate? Or so what? Tom O'Neill ends up in this article on Vanity Fair. It opens up into so much. Really? On I'd so love many to axes read that. that it turns into a 20 plus year research uh, project. He ends up coming out with this book called Chaos. Chaos is named after Operation Chaos. Operation Chaos was the operation the CIA had in, inside of America that mirrored Operation COINTELPRO of the FBI. Part of Operation Chaos was the amphetamine, the Haight-Ashbury Amphetamine mm, Project. Yeah. The CIA brought the amphetamine Shit. into Haight-Ashbury. Well, they brought acid in before that. They did Accidentally. All well, no. They Wait, s- so they brought in the speed to make people To get people get off the LSD up. and to disrupt the whole thing. Oh, my God. But there's documentation of a whole CIA experiment. of MKUltra. T- uh, trying to get people on acid and see if it would work as a truth serum. And so that's where this book starts is Charles Manson being uh, tied to all these different times being tied to Louis Jolly on West. Louis yeah. Jolly on West, the head of MKUltra under Sidney Gottlieb. 
Louis Jolion West had an office at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. Ah. The CIA was one of the major funders of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. No. Yes. Wow, yeah, yeah. That yes. guy, was his doctor, remember him? Richard yes. Miller? Yeah, right, right. He didn't know that. He didn't know it? No, he was. A, he, he's a really fucking amazing dude. I've he, actually, he was a good guy. Crunch, I've actually interviewed him. Great. He's, he's been on Radio Free Earth. He's, fuck, he's an amazing, amazing human being. He's, he's for sexual liberation, human liberation, psychedelics, full psychology. He's a really amazing man. I don't think he had anything to do with or knew about it, but the CIA was funding the Haight-Ashbury uh-huh, Free yeah, Clinic. Yeah. And do you know when the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic closed down? It was right when this article came out exposing their funding. And then all of a sudden the Haight-Ashbury Clinic closed uh, down. Yeah. You couldn't actually go. And why were they funding that? To keep an eye he, on everybody? Louis Jolion West had an office. Louis Jolion West, the psychologist head of MK Ultra's drug program for the CIA. What's MK Ultra? MK Ultra was um, their program to use uh, psychedelics and sleep deprivation in the process called psychic driving. Because, because that's now the name of a cannabis cultivar. So it's, it's MK to create, Ultra. It's to create split, split personalities and yeah. mind control uh-huh. assassins like Sirhan Sirhan, like the guy who shot Reagan. Oh, jeez. Like like all these people who like you know Sirhan Sirhan like didn't right. know what he was doing, found himself in this uh, a patsy for this for this right. assassination. Didn't even realize how he had the, the gun in his hand. Still to this day says he doesn't remember it. And Bobby Kennedy was shot with multiple calibers of of weapons that Sirhan Sirhan did not have on him, right? Tom O'Neill goes into that, too, because all of this shit is part of MKUltra and the CIA's attempt to use LSD for nefarious plans that actually morphed primarily into the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and the Acid Generation almost taking over the fucking world in a positive way, right? So it completely backfired on them. But they show how Charles Manson gets busted for all this crazy shit, including a murder, and just gets let go. And how he had this uh, handler, this parole handler that was allied with the CIA, and how he was using MK Ultra techniques on his followers because they had actually been done to fucking him. Dude. So what was this Manson book is just like this. It? This book is like this the whole time. Yeah. Like, Wah! I just I, I just read uh, the story of uh, Timothy Leary's uh, arrest, and is going to Algeria and then going yeah. to Afghanistan. The most dangerous man in America. Yeah, right. And, I've read that too. Yeah, and yes. then the whole thing with the Brotherhood of Light and so on, how they kept funding him and the Weatherman and yes. all these different things. Right. The Brotherhood of Eternal Fast. Love. Yeah, right. Those were the guys who actually almost put the entire psychedelic revolution over because they were funding the Panthers, they were funding the Weather Underground, they funded Woodstock, they funded Altamont, they were funding the Bring yeah. the Dead. Wow. They were basically funding everybody. All right. And what happened with them is kind of what similar to what happened to me. Like they were, they were in a gang. I was, I was a varsity uh, athlete. We both sides of us were heavily invested in violence, and then contacted LSD and, and saw really what the truth of what was going on, and then changed their lives and dedicated to spreading psychedelics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what the Brotherhood did is they began smuggling hash from Afghanistan right, first right. into Morocco, yeah, all and then converting all the hash profits into LSD, which they both gave away and sold, yeah. and then converting. The so LSD it was very interesting into, to me because those years, 70, 71, 72, 73, yeah. you know, I was in San Francisco, but then. I, then I uh, worked uh, on a film okay. about the you know various holy men coming to San Francisco, and so I went to uh, Iran, Iraq, Israel, India, Nepal, Afghanistan in those same years that Larry was running from the law, right? So it was just an amazing thing to say. Where was I in 1971 when Tim Leary was wow. in Algeria, right? What was I doing, right? You guys might have been occupying similar space, shared space. To a certain extent, right. right? But one of the people we filmed in this film about the holy man was Ram Dass, who was obviously previously Richard Alpert and Leary's uh, companion and all that sort of stuff, Uh right? So it was like, and then I'm, I'm on making a film of Richard Alpert as Ram Dass in 1971 at his father's farm up in, up in uh, New Hampshire, right? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Wow. 
So I was just one step away from those guys in a way. It's curious. Yeah. I have a book you would love if you love first uh -huh. edition books. I do. I have this book called Love Needs Care. Have you ever heard of this book? It's about the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. And wow. it's was written in like 1968 or 9 or something. And I, mean, I went to the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic for the class oh, I think it was a boon to the community. Then. I don't think, oh, I don't totally. think the clinic itself was bad. It totally was. It yeah. helped a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And Richard Miller had a heart of gold, actually. Yeah. Really. He's such a yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what totally. was the book that you had? Love Needs Love Care. Needs Care. Okay. And I, I still have it. It has some of the best pictures from that time uh -huh, yeah. in it. It's just a classic. And yeah, I've, I've always, I love that book. I have this cool <laughs> zine that my parents had kept called Hippie is Necessary. <laughs> have you ever seen it? No. And it's just, it's like a fun Were your parents scene. hippies? They were. Really? They were, yeah, yeah. That's what kind of set me off. But wait a minute, how, how old are you? I am 50. My mom so, was 23 when she had me. Okay, so I guess that was right then. Oh yeah, no, she was. So she, you, you could like, be a child of hippies. And yeah. she was kind of like more biker-oriented. Uh huh. Hippie uh huh. Mama. Like, uh huh. My mom was nuts. So wow. Was my, yeah, they were pretty. They were pretty out there, ladies. Wow. Far out. Far so out. that's one of the things they had, and that's so that's what let me. I got into like Ronald Reagan, and they hate us for our freedom. Oh no! What? Right, like. It, it, so in rebelling against my parents. To rebel, exactly. You have like, to I can't rebel. smoke dope and listen to Led Zeppelin because right. that's what they do on Saturday when they're like vacuuming the house. Right. Literally, right? right. And so I sorry, part my hair in the middle. Oh, I was like Alex B. Keaton, right? I was straight up, that was me out of that show. I can't imagine. Part of my hair in the side, yeah. wrestling And what, Oh, you were a wrestler? That was your wrestler? Yeah, 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 yeah. America all the way, going, getting, you know, hanging out with the football players, getting in fights, just realizing that violent domination is the way to win the entire world. Wow. And my parents are broke hippie idiots. Oh, they must have hated that. They were concerned. Yeah, they were concerned, I bet. and then like I bet. if my mom would come to a wrestling match, I would go out of my way to make the kid that I was wrestling cry. I know. <laughs> so what changed you, LSD? Yeah. So what happened was I was really spiritual and very sensitive. This is supposed to be about you guys, not me. I tell the story a million times. I went to private school. My parents rewarded me for doing so well by putting me in public school. Where I couldn't learn anything because in private school I was doing college level shit in, in elementary school. Right. And I was very sensitive. I was very spiritual. I liked to hang out by myself in the woods. We lived in Fair Oaks in the gold country. I liked to hang out by the American River by myself in the woods. Nice. Like, I was a weirdo. That's you know? kind of the way I grew up too, hanging out in the woods by myself. So then I go to public school to be with all my friends. And I'm like really bookish and I'm in the AP classes and I'm having trouble with the teachers because of, uh, other than math or English, I'm like pushing back on a lot of stuff because their curriculum is outdated and I just know... The actual facts that I'm a kid thinking that like this is actually about the pursuit of facts and not by like not like a government institute of curricula I didn't I didn't understand that and they didn't explain it to me when I would get in trouble so I was getting in trouble and my grades were starting to suffer because I was just like I'm not gonna repeat lies like now nah, just like opt out of this whole thing and then because I was so sensitive like you know hey faggot was my new cool nickname and like oh, so geez. I go to school to like I'm, yeah, I'm gonna be in school with all my friends. I can like walk home. I can ride my bike. With it. It's gonna be the best thing ever. And I show up, and like all the teachers hate me. And it's like, hey, faggot. And I'm just like, you know, I'm just like, this is super a bummer for me, man. Like, I'm I'm just a, a nice guy. Like, I'm not this thing, you know. Like, just scratching my head. And so then, wrestling comes along, right? And they start in the wrestling just in the PE classes, and I dominate my class in my weight class and a couple other weight classes. And then it's at lunchtime, all the winners of the different PE classes wrestle. And then all of the winners of the winners wrestle for first and second in the lunch quad, okay? And the kid so I everybody's was, watching. 
The whole, the whole school. school. Yeah, the yeah, whole yeah, school yeah, right yeah. after they eat, they eat lunch is seated in the lunch quad, which is ours was like an amphitheater. Uh-huh. And I wrestled this kid, Chris LaForce, who was like my size, but the school's badass who could like beat up anybody and like super bad kid, total badass. And I pinned him in like 45 seconds. And the whole crowd goes nuts. And he like isn't mad about it. He totally gives me mad respect and like gives me a hug and like we're cool. And like all of a sudden, like I'm the superstar of the whole school because I beat Chris I LaForce. Love it. And now it's like girls like, like, like snap the finger. Girls like me. Everybody likes me. Now I'm super cool. And I was like, oh, all right, I get it. Violent domination. I can do this. And so then I started just fighting a lot and just taking whatever I wanted by the force of my personality Uh and the fact that I was more tenacious and able to beat people up. I just did whatever I wanted. And I was fairly just about it in my estimation of things. But at the same time, like, I just, I snapped. Uh And at the same time, Ronald Reagan was happening. Right. And I was convinced my parents were idiots. So this and is like, all in the 80s. Then. This yeah. is all in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You got that lighter over there? Yes, sir. Um, and then uh, they, ran co- hunch, uh, they ran hostage things happen. And right. Reagan saves everybody and he's yeah, clean right. cut in America. And I'm into Wally George and Morton Downey Jr. And like, oh my God. dude, I'm just going to be rich. And then I decide I'm going to go into special forces because I love violence so much. So I'm gonna get it. I'm just gonna get a college degree. I'm gonna go right into officer corps. I'm gonna get into Delta Force or the or buds, Shit. and I'm just gonna fucking murder people because it uh. feels for our freedom. And I would have been really good at it. Like yeah. I play airsoft and tactical stuff, and like I'm really good at it. Like I would have been one of those dudes for real. But my parents were hippies and intellectual, and they had a bunch of books, a lot of radical books, a lot of radical comics, including the Freak Brothers, right? Feminist comics and all that kind of shit. And so even though I knew that shit was wrong. I'd done enough reading. I really, I knew about Leary. I just knew that I would eat LSD at least one time, right? When I turned 18, that was my whole thing. So, turned 18, I ate the LSD. With your parents or on your own? On my own with my buddy. Did you know what kind it was, what it was, just for the heck of it? Well, in the 80s, it could have been. It was a random hit of blotter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by then it was blotter. It was good and it did the work. Mm -hmm. Because within 40 minutes of getting high, I realized that my parents were right about everything. (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty radical. And my whole path was fucked. Wow. And who I was when I was three was actually more in tune with who I actually was inside. Exactly. And that everything else was just this reaction to the hostility that had greeted me. And the only reason I became this violent, aggro dickhead was because I didn't go the other way, which was just to wilt and become somebody else's victim. But neither right. one of those were really great. It was, And this thing was the problem. And then the first thing I did is just totally lose my mind and like, want to get into the weather underground type stuff and I'm like robbing banks. Oh, you really went right the whole Well, I just knew, I could see the This is not supposed to be a podcast about banks. This no, this is I, fascinating. As, I, as I was reading this Leary book about Leary, right? Uh-huh. What I'm totally weather understanding is there cuz I was, you know, I was 20 in my 20s at that time, right? And so in the first part of the, every chapter starts out with a list of all the things all the things that have been blown up. In that month, I mean, just one after the other. Right. A bomb here, a bomb here, right. a bomb here, yes. a bomb here, That's a bomb. Right. Here. I mean, seriously, fifteen different cities yeah. within two months all have bombs go off. Yeah. Maybe right. they're banks, whatever it was, right? And I said, "Well, you know what? I don't remember it being that much in those days because most of them didn't make headlines didn't elsewhere. Make the it was a little town, right. Akron, Ohio, got something like right. that, right? right? And so I'm a." There were there was a really every every week there was a, at least two bombs went off in various places. This was, and it was like wow. now I'm comparing it to today. Right. 
right, and say, okay, here's a riot here because some black guy got killed. You know, here's another riot over here in Charlotte because they, you know, they want the white supremacists are coming. But you know, and now we have these mass shootings. They're not bombs going off against the establishment. They are mass shootings against what? Against the people. school children? Yeah. Now where have we come, man? What's a, what, we've hit bottom here somehow or other, you know. And so that 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 uh, culture of violence yeah. that you create new by violence has taken over here in so many ways. Yes. And what they've done is right. What, what happened with you? Is they've wrapped it in patriotism. Yep. And so that natural violent thing that many people have. Right over evolved over how many million years as how do you survive, and they get free reign. They get let to do that because of patriotism, right? Yes, sir. And so many people were misguided in their patriotism. They thought they were defending America at a certain point, but in fact, they'd been brainwashed to use their violence for someone else's purpose, thinking it was patriotism. It's happening right now. And the purpose was corporate yeah. corporate wealth and the absolutely wealth of the and control and the control and the classes of Europe. Yeah, and, and, and the yeah, allied yeah. families of America, and that's what I. So I, I do this acid. I'll tell you the rest of the story some other time. It's it no, goes wait, on wait, and wait, on. wait. I, I'm a journalist. I just okay. want to know one thing. I gotta, yes, I gotta ask yes, you a question. When did you do your second hit of acid? Within a month. Okay, so I was it became a thing. It was off to the races. I became a firefighter for a minute. All this stuff. Oh yeah, <clears throat> you'd be good. But one of the things that happened immediately was somehow I just knew that the story I was getting was wrong. And I was able to tap into information. You know, this is well pre-internet. This is library stuff and, and just finding local freaks I knew. And I was able to get a fuller accounting. And right when I was kind of figuring out that stuff wasn't right is when the Iran-Contra hearing started. Right. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, shit, these guys are, like, doing coke deals and weapons deals. And they kept, why it's got chills, they kept the hostages as hostages per a deal with Reagan. Mm-hmm. And they used that against me. I was like... 10 years old, and I was for sure they hated us for our freedom, and they were doing this to destroy us, and I had been manipulated by the CIA and George Bush and Ronald Reagan and all these motherfuckers, right? Right, and believed it. And that's what's happening in this world, is they yeah. wrap the U.S. as, you know, we're this American exceptionalist state, and, and we're so free, and they hate us for our freedom. Here's another book. We should definitely do a book trade at the end, and I'll, I'll drop some books for everybody. Um, there's a book called The Devil's Chessboard. Uh-huh. And it's about the history of Alan Dulles's uh, career in, in the CIA through mm. the OSS, how he smuggled all the Nazis back to the right. yeah. NSA, CIA, and NASA. Right, right, right. And then how they killed Allende in Chile and, and all the banana wars and, and the fruit wars. The right, the CIA Nicaragua, and Guatemala, Guatemala right. all that how stuff. How they killed yeah, yeah. Mossadegh in Iran. Yeah. See, I've traveled they, to most of those places. Right. So I saw the leftover. You've seen it firsthand. Yeah, what yeah. happened afterwards. I've been in Guatemala, I've been in Colombia, I've been in Peru and all those places, right? And it was yeah. like... Uh, you know, and while I was in Peru, that they were still chasing uh, um, Che Guevara, right? What? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And one time, when I was in Argentina, traveling around, and, and here I'm, I'm the only guy in Argentina with a beard. <laughs> right? Everyone there is clean shaven, right? And so they're thinking I look like this revolutionary because revolutionaries, by definition, have in beard. South America, have beards, right? <laughs> and so, and you know, I'm traveling around with my friend in Argentina. This is what 1975, 76, like that, right? And so we go somewhere, and the first thing they do is they, we, they come into our hotel at 2 in the morning and take us down to the police station for interrogation. Are you part of, what was the name of that? 
It was Sendero Luminoso. Yes, Sendero Luminoso. Maybe it was there. They might, but I think they were in Peru. But no, they were Peru. There there was another group similar to that in Argentina, right? And so, and then we'd get checked out, and then so on and so. But they would come in and uh, at two in the morning, just take us down. And one time, I'm sitting on the on the porch with this guy, my friend, my Argentinian friend, who's traveling is there, and I have this kind of Panama hat on, right? And uh, so he's looking at me, and he's looking at me, and he's looking, and he says, "You know what? You look just like Santucho." And I look at my friend, and I said, "Who's Santucho?" He says, "He's the revolutionary on the run right now." Oh, no. <laughs> right? I said, "No, no, I'm just an American. I'm just a gringo here." But then you used to get it when you when he came back from India as Swami after he transformed into Swami, and in the first few years he was even wearing a turban, and it was right during the whole Saddam Hussein thing. And people used to say, they'd call out and call him Saddam. No, no they call me Bin Laden. Oh, no, Bin Laden it was. They say, bin you Laden. look like Bin and Laden. it's like, wait a minute, oh. Bin Laden's like six foot four. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know? I'm a um, little guy, right? right? I don't think so. <laughs> and so they call, they're calling me Bin Laden, and so I say to them, no, I'm not Bin Laden, I'm Dumbledore. I'm Dumbledore. Right? <laughs> That's when the Harry Potter movies were coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course, these guys didn't know who Dumbledore was, right? right. They didn't care. Oh, my so, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, no, actually, you know, there's that whole revolutionary thing that did happen all through South America, right? And so there was like, you know, it was just an amazing thing. I'm on, I, I travel in South America, Guatemala, 1973, and then I come back to the U.S. in 1976. And that whole time, I'm pretty much in either in Central America, South America, right? So I, I leave uh, Guatemala, and then there's this sort of semi-revolutionary thing, and the, the CIA comes in and does all these things. I go to Colombia. They kick after I'm there for three months. They kick all the gringos out because they're having an election in Colombia, their first election in 30 wow. years, okay. and they were afraid that there was going to be violence, right? And they didn't want the gringos, all us hippies, hanging out there because in Colombia we found magic mushrooms, and of course there was all sorts of weed. I, where I lived in Colombia, I used to go out in the field every morning and, and right out of the cow paddy pick the fresh mushrooms, right, and make an omelet and then toast up some fresh coffee beans <laughs> and make a, a mushroom, a psychedelic mushroom omelet, wow. have some coffee and so on. But we had to leave because they were afraid that w- there was going to be violence. So where do we go? We end up in Ecuador, right? Okay. So then Ecuador, Ecuador, now there's also some revolutionary acts in them. So we have to leave there. Then we're in Peru. And then while I'm in Peru, after two years in Peru, they have a, a coup d'etat and they throw out the prime minister and put in a, a, a reactionary right winger and say, Hey, it's time to leave again, Swami. Right? I go to Argentina, right? And then, boom, I'm in Argentina for about six months. And all of a sudden, they have, they're flying over and they're dive bombing the capital and they get rid of, and the president is, I mean, it just was crazy. It's like basically every country I went to in South America, by the time I'd been there for a little while, all of a sudden I had to leave, right? And I swear, everybody, I had nothing to do with this, right? I'm just, <laughs> it was Maybe just a coincidence. More than a coincidence. <laughs> it was right, just a, right. you know, I'm not standing up there preaching democracy and freedom and all of that sort of stuff. I'm just a hippie traveler, right? right it was <laughs> peace and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was kind of fun in those years, and I, I did get back, and I, every once in a while I tell the story, I don't tell it too often, but I tell the story every once in a while, and people say, how did you get back alive? You know, I mean, it was like, I was just a step ahead, right? Wow. And I, yeah, there are other details to the story, I won't bore you with that, but it was like pretty interesting to be there, because South America was totally in a trade, because Allende, right, had just been ar- arrested, Right, I was there, and then uh, I was working on a film in our in Peru that was kind of a bunch of left wingers, right? 
And so I said, well, I better not go to Chile at that point because right. it was Pinochet at that point. Yep. And so I went nowhere near Chile because I, I was working with a bunch of left-wing socialists in Peru <laughs> making this film about the working man. And it was very you know, intense right at, at that time, right? So anyway, I haven't been to South America for quite a while. I have to go back at some point, but it's a little more calm now. That's yeah, somewhat, yeah. We just got so close. Like every on every axis, it really got so close in the '60s and '70s yeah. to actually being able to overturn the dominant order. Yeah. It was yeah. Within hair's breadth, of very very many times. Yeah. Well, yeah, some of that was very hidden. You see, it was unknown, and that it was all secret. All that stuff, both the good stuff and the bad stuff. Right. Right. right? And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, in a book with Leary, uh, and, and it's like they're talking about these various shipments of acid, right? And I realized that, oh, yeah, I had some of that. Yeah. <laughs> I had some of that, you know? And, uh, and uh, yeah, it was just that interesting to be in that wave. And then there was the other thing where uh, uh, this guy, I know, wrote this book about smuggling uh, marijuana from Mexico and then uh, smuggling, first running over the border from Texas. It's called 90 Degrees to... To Zambanga, right? Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rick uh, right. Ribero, Rick Ribero, and he wrote. He was the smuggler, and he wrote this book about his adventures, kind of an autobiography. And I, I tried to read this book, and I got so paranoid reading the book, I could never finish it. Right? <laughs> right? I'm reading the first chapter, and he's trying to go over the border in Mexico, somewhere, and bring it back on a backpack, you know, going through the arroyos and so on. It's like. And I'm just, I couldn't, even, but finally I, we had him on a podcast on our show, and so I had to read the whole book. Fascinating book, right? Wow. And he's describing how, okay, we brought this weed from Mexico in these two, uh, these kilo bricks, two pound bricks, right? And it's wrapped in this green cellophane. I said, holy shit, man, I had some of that. Uh, not only that, that green I, cellophane. That green, and then it was yeah, red cellophane too, yeah. too yeah. right? Yeah. And I remember kilo bricks of that, exactly. and we had like 10 or 15 of them, right? Because yes. at that time I had a light show with three other friends, and it was called uh, Light Sound Dimension, LSD. Nice. Yeah, right? And we had all these projectors and so on, so uh, we would play all over the place. Uh, at, at the Family Dog on the Great Highway, I did it in the museums and so on. We had our light show, and it was really, it was really an unusual light show because we had uh, 18 slide projectors, the carousel ones that went yeah. around, and we, <laughs> and we just turned them all on so they'd go as fast as possible. And we'd put all these abstract slides in there, people slides in there, and just create a light show with flashing lights and 18 and flashing lights. you painted some of the slides. We pan painted right. some yeah. of the slides. So it was a strobe, yep. but it had content. Which is even yeah, more. Yeah, it was really trippy. So, and we we, we did it. <laughs> we did it in the Strait Theater in in in, in the Hague, and then we did it at the Palace of the Legion of Honor. We did it all over the place. We had our own screens and so on. But you were talking about what else you used the boxes for. Oh yeah, right. We would use. We had all these slide right. boxes and slide uh, trays and so on and so forth. So we would empty out the boxes, fill our van with the empty boxes go to this pickup point and load it full of these kilo bricks nice. of Mexican weed so we could bring it into our house without mm. anybody knowing anything. Nice. We were always bringing in projectors and so on. <laughs> so, so we were what was called a holding company. You remember Big Brother and the holding company? Well, the holding company was the people who actually were the warehouse for the drugs because oh. the dealer never wanted very much weight in their house, right? So totally. we did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, so the dealer would be over here in this house, people coming in and out, and we'd be over here with like 30 pounds, 30 kilos of that, and maybe 2,000 hits of acid. 
You know those little yellow double dome asses? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, we had those. I remember counting those out up by hundreds on the kitchen table, right? Getting really ripped because of the dust, you know? It's like, <laughs> right? Sure. But anyway, we had these, we had these uh, wait, 20 to 30 kilos of this, you know, green plastic wrap stuff. And then uh, after what we, our, our, what we charged for this service was we were allowed to roll up as many joints as we wanted every morning. Nice. So the three other guys I was doing the light show with, we would roll up 20 joints with a Rizzler roller, right, like that, take them around, and then just trip all over the city all day, yeah. going to the park, going right. to the beach, go over to Sausalito, whatever, stop in a car, and pick up every hitchhiker we could and get them ripped, Such right? right. Go, go across the, go, the, the Bay Bridge, yeah. pay the toll, and give the guy a joint. <laughs> you know, nice. <laughs> we were just doing these crazy things, and, and after a while they said, you guys are smoking way too much, 20 joints a day, you know, that's probably at least an ounce, right? <laughs> <laughs> So at any rate, uh, they took the privilege away from us and so on. So, we, But that was, I mean, for a little while, we just were. And then, we, of course, we'd be doing acid once a week. Right. Just, you only a, did it once a week? See, she was 14 at the time, right? Crazy. So <laughs> going to school every day. I don't know about you. Wow. <laughs> and then you do a heavier hit on the weekend. Right. That's true. But we spaced it out with, you know, 10 joints a day. So it wasn't exactly like, you know. <laughs> she's, she's trying to out-hippie me over here. Right? But she wasn't really a hippie. She was the flower child that the hippies were always, like, flirting with and so on. started at 14, yeah. That's hilarious. And so how did you two meet? Hanging out in Washington Square Park. In North Beach. Because, like, see, what happened, what we were saying is all the bad drugs came into the hate. Okay. And when that happened, a bunch of people in the hate, a lot of the very, a lot of the hippies moved up to the country, moved up to Mendocino, yes. moved back up to the to land, right. they call it, yeah. And a lot of them moved to North Beach, and huh. it was sort of a natural progression because North Beach is where the whole beat, beat generation yeah. came and from. And the artists, the poets, and the beat and generation was sort of they were still the there, like Gregory Corso you know, was there. That, but that kicked it off into the hippie I remember walking down the streets in Allen Ginsberg as he walked yeah. into City Lights bookstore and stuff so, like that. So a bunch of hippies moved to North Beach. You could get apartments really cheap then. You know, it was a great neighborhood. And we'd all hang out in the coffee houses. But see, in addition yeah. to that, there were just below North Beach on Battery and, and Sansom, uh, right on the bay, there were all these empty warehouses. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So we actually, a bunch of us, uh, we had a warehouse called the Chicken Factory, <laughs> which is a meatpacking <laughs> plant, but it had all been turned into artist studios, right? So at the bottom of the Filbert Steps, you have your studio. You walk over the Filbert Steps, past Coit Tower, back down to the Malvinas or the Trieste Coffee Shop, and it was the whole neighborhood, right? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it was a really vibrant thing. And uh, as Nikki said, it kind of, you know, where my, uh, the hate got kind of wiped out with, uh, like I said, the one-way street and so on. People either moved to the country or moved to North Beach or else, or else to the Mission or something like that, yeah. A few, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a whole scene, so. Yeah, and then I just stayed friends with the whole group of, you know, they had a few communes. They still had one commune out in the hate, yeah. the whole group. And then but uh, in North in Beach, North we, uh, somebody would have an apartment building in North Beach, and it was one of those railroad flats, right? The, the hallway goes all the way through the house, right yes. to the back, and then rooms off the side. So there'd be, you know, we'd pat you know, 10 or 15 artists in there, drawing in the hallway, drawing the thing, somebody playing guitar, the guitar, we'd all be, you know, taking acid or something like that and spend 8 or 10 or 12 hours just, you know, cool making art and, yeah. and playing music yeah, and so on. Day. Yeah, that was Pretty happening much, a whole yeah. lot, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it was good. Those were good days. But, you know, now there's like this other great book out called, um, 
uh, uh, what's it called? Um, the, you know, the one that um, about San Francisco in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, it's named after that oh, song. Oh, uh, it's named after a song. David something or other. Yeah, David Talbot. <laughs> David Talbot. Right, right, that's right. good to start. Anyway, this book is it's really eye opening because. You know, like we look back at history and it's like, oh, those were the good old days. Well, no, you know, just like you were saying before about the other stuff, it's like there was so much shit going down in the city during the 70s and the 80s. And, right. You know, the... Um, we didn't know about it at the time. Well, okay. we did know about it, but we didn't take it very seriously. You know, like the, the guys that were, what was his name, going around shooting up everybody and... Um, there were oh yeah no there were all of these like crazy mass murderer types around the city. The Zodiac murder. The Zodiac oh, murder. And then there was another guy too. And they were and Jim Jones, you know, and the whole right. wacky thing. That all was this that stuff was, that was, comes that up was, in this book. Well, was, yeah, actually, Jim Jones started up in Mendocino County in Redwood Valley, right? And yeah. then moved down to San Francisco, yeah. and then moved to what was but Guiana. But all that stuff was happening because you know I just remember being like this young flower child and. I would just have to be home for dinner, you know, basically. <laughs> and my parents were so worried about it. They were very conservative Italian Catholic types. And I'm like, why do they worry all the time? And now when I look back at this, it's like, oh, they maybe that's worried. why they worry. <laughs> I was out there hitchhiking yeah. everywhere, getting picked up by people like him, smoking joints. Right. And, you know, and I likewise would just leave home with a bunch of joints every day because that's how you met people. Yeah. And, wow. yeah, those were the days. So, you know, there's a big correlation between the cessation of leaded gasoline and violent crime and serial killers in, in, in the U.S. No, how California. so? Yeah. How so? They're thinking that the lead in the air was making people more prone to oh, impulsive violence. Yeah, for real. Wow. Like, there's literally, like, the leaded gasoline goes down and then there's this huge drop-off in crime, like, Crazy, crazy. Everyone was psychotic from that uh, poison because lead is basically poison. It is. People, it yeah. is. I mean, so how long when was But you know what? Before that, there were lead pipes in the water pipes in houses. Right. Well, yeah. there's still a lot of old houses have that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was one of the things that led to the Romans as well, yeah. generating so much. Lead? Lead line pipes, lead, pipes, lead yeah. drinking vessels. Really? Lead, yeah, they had lead cups and lead plates. Wow. But when, so when we were kids, and, you know, I mean, for me, the first time I ever got high that I remember was I always loved going to the gas station with my mother, and I would breathe in the fumes. So were those, um, <laughs> were, were those lead fumes I yeah. was breathing? Because I don't remember yeah. getting violent about it, though. I just like well, feeling just, high. Uh, it, it, uh, it's like poor impulse control. So it's not even impulse, just violence right. for everybody, but it's poor impulse control. Interesting. So for some people, that might just be living fast and loose, you know what I mean? Yeah, for yeah. For other people, that might be like, you know, picking someone up and killing them and dumping them in the woods. Wow, wow. that's crazy. Yeah. 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 Wow. Trippy, right? That is yeah. trippy. I, I don't doubt it. It yeah. was. It wasn't really... Because I, I tend to do the same thing as I look back and I just see yeah, you gloss California of the 70s with just the sandy brown hills and the right. oak trees yeah, yeah, and you yeah, can build yeah. whatever house you wanted and everybody's yeah. driving a VW bus and it's right, freedom right, right. And perfect blue skies yeah. and there, but there was all the other... Well, see, the other thing that happened, too, is we said that, you know, some people moved to North Beach out of the hate. Some people moved out to the country. Right. Season of the Witch. That's the Season name of the, of the book. Witch, yeah, right. I'm sorry. I just no, had okay. to come up with the name yeah, of that yeah, book. Yeah, right, okay. yeah. So, but the other thing that happened is a whole lot of people just took off and went around the world, particularly to India and to Europe and so on. And so what we began to realize is there really was an international movement. 
that right. the hippies weren't just from San Francisco. Right. And of course, there was obviously the New York contingent and the, you know the, all the various universities that had their you know a, you know acid and uh, dope smoking people and so on. But then to realize in 1967, the Summer of Love in Paris, there were all sorts of revolutionary revolt with the students. They're marching and demonstrating, shutting down the whole thing. Similarly, strangely enough, likewise in China. Mm. They're going. The, the Red, Red Guard is going Red crazy. Guard. All the that youth. Was not so positive. The cultural revolution. Yeah, yeah the cultural revolution. But, still, but what it was. It was what it was. Yeah. But it was the yeah. youth saying, "Hey, we're tired of this stuff. Right? We're, we want to change this, and so on." And so, and then, uh, so I joined a whole bunch of people. And Nikki came a few years later. We did what was called the Hippie Trail. Right. right from basically it started mostly in London but of course you had to get to London first right and uh, no, I started in San Francisco <laughs> on the hippie trail <laughs> I always have to get it. <laughs> you flew to Europe I started overland from San Francisco from all, yeah right but, yeah but, no, well, you took a train you took a train across Canada or something no I did a Greyhound bus oh sh shit from San Francisco <laughs> to Montreal and I remember I got really ride. stoned on quaaludes because somebody gave me all these quaaludes and said, here, you'll fall asleep. This is great. And sure enough, yeah, I passed out, only to be awakened in Kansas City. They made us all get off the bus so they could fumigate it. And I'll never forget that. I could hardly walk. And, you know, being in this horrible Greyhound bus station, totally, like, out of it on quaaludes. And, and then you would get back on the bus, and it just stunk of this insecticide or whatever oh, they yeah. antiseptic yeah, yeah, yeah. oh it was horrible anyway anyway, that was just the beginning of a great trip though a great trip oh, what, you got to Toronto no I got to Montreal from Montreal I took a Russian cruise ship to can England. you imagine that a Russian cruise ship starting Soviet. in Montreal Soviet, Soviet yeah Soviet, Soviet. Yeah, from, that was the cheapest and where did way to it get to up? Europe back in those where did days it, end up? it ended up just south of London at that port the Soviet yeah. Union Southampton or something like that they did they had these cruise ships that you know, and most of the people on the cruise ship were Soviets. I don't know how they got what? to go in and out, but well, they how did. How did you find this ticket? And it was just the cheapest way to go. Hippies knew about it. You know, uh, it was just in the know. That was what, 70 what? 77. And it was cheaper than flying. It was just the cheapest way. And it huh. was, and there was a group of us. There was about eight hippies on the ship. And, you know, we all hung out together. But they made, like, the girls sleep in one dump beds or bunk bed dorm rooms and the boys in another and and it was the worst food in the world but the funniest part was about about two days out in the middle of the ocean the sea got really rough really rough and over the announcement that intercom they announced if you're feeling sick come to the desk we give you a little blue pill so everybody goes for their little blue pill and they're just randomly handing these things out. It, you know, regardless of your size, your weight, your age, anything, everyone's getting the same amount and the whole boat shut down for three days. Everyone just passed out, basically. These pills were strong. You just passed out. So they didn't have to feed anybody for like <laughs> right, three days. Right. Didn't have yes, to clean any vomit right, or yeah. nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you weren't throwing up from seasickness either, but oh you were just God. passed out. And I was one of the first to wake up. I remember going into the what? dining room, and it was virtually empty. And it, it was just... But then they had great, you know, entertainment, like, you know, classes, how to play the balalaka was a class. Or it, the film, they only had one film that they kept showing, which was how the Russians won the war. And that was exciting. So well, it's true. World War II, yeah. yeah the Russians did win. They did yeah, win yeah, World yeah. War II. And that's what they showed over and over. Anyway, that just got me to London. From London, it was a whole other than the magic bus across Europe. And but and then, didn't you take another boat? Well, yeah, because I got down to Greece, and then I had to hitchhike onto a yacht to get over to Turkey. That was cool. 
and then wow. and then it was from Turkey, you know, I mean, everything, whatever you can find, bus, bullet carts, trains. What a trip. Yeah, you yeah. Know, there was like, I think a 1957 Chevy going across the Khyber yeah. Pass. Yeah. I think I was in the trunk. And this is, you guys were rendezvous. No, no, she was, no, 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 that was no, no. completely separate. Oh, okay. I, 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 first, I first went in, uh, what was it, 71. Okay. And uh, uh, I flew to London on Icelandic Airlines, I think, something like that. That was another cheap way. That yeah. was another cheap way to get there. Oh, and then I met, I met some friends from art school in London. And uh, the first thing we did was we took acid and went to Hyde Park. And okay. just had this really great, uh, great time tripping around, sort of a. And then, uh, then we took a, a ferry over to I think it landed in Antwerp or something like that in Belgium. And then we hitchhiked to Amsterdam, hitchhiked across Germany, and then then in Amst in Austria we got stuck because we found out the Austrians didn't pick up hitchhikers. Oh. So finally, someone picked us up, and we for like a, <laughs> two miles, and we got to the train station. Okay. So uh, we get on the train, and it turns out it's the same train line as the Orient Express. But wow. we're on just a regular old train, because okay. the Orient Express is a real fancy wooden gotcha. old train, right? Yeah, yeah. But we're just on the regular train. So we go through Romania. the same line. Yeah, the same rail line. So we go through M Romania and Bulgaria, right? But we can't get off the plane, because those are communist places, right? Wow. Right? And then we, then we finally end up uh, going through Greece and getting to Istanbul, right? Okay. And then we had to cross the, uh, what is it called? Bosporus. The Bosporus, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from there, I took a train. Yugoslavia and all that, too. We missed we Yugoslavia because we oh, went Bulgaria. Oh, no, okay. we went I through Bulgaria, Romania, right? Yeah. But then in in uh, I think forget it, I think it was Romania. They came on and the train stopped. We couldn't get off, but they made us all change money because they got now American dollars right. and we got Romanian dinars or something like that. Right? <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, I so got I some give dinars, up. right? Give up those so, and so then you know finally we take a, I take a train across. I was with. Uh, the mother of my second son, Mireille, who's uh, half American, half French. So we were traveling together, right? So on this train now from Istanbul to a town called Ezerum in the far yeah. eastern part of Turkey. Armpit. Right? We're traveling. Ezerum means armpit, basically. Right. Well, it should. Yeah. So, you know, we had a little, uh, the, the train compartment was maybe seven feet wide and about eight feet long, and there were nine people in there, and they're all this whole family of, of Turks going somewhere. And, was it and the double bench seats? Or you was two it two bench yeah. facing, and then a bunk over top, you yeah. see. Jesus. And, uh, and, and, bunk over top both sides? Yeah, yeah. Jeez, no, it was packed. packed. It was packed in, right? And, and it was this sort of tribal group, and the guy who was kind of the head man of the tribe, I look over, and he's got six gold watch bands on, right? Six <laughs> watches and six gold. And I look, and none of them work, right? They're just decoration, <laughs> right? They're just gold jewelry, just right? Flexing, yeah. But at a certain point, from what I could figure out, he was trying to buy my, my old lady, Mireille. He, I, that's all I could cut. Of course, we didn't speak any language. This, so we just kind of chilled out. We were totally flipped out, freaked out, right? Oh, and geez. then we finally get off in Ezerum. And the only thing I remember about Ezerum is they had the best halva I've ever eaten. Oh, really? Right? It was just, and you go into the little corner shop, and there's a giant pile of halva on the counter, and they brush off the flies, and then, but it was really, really delicious, right? It was really good. So then, uh, then we're taking a bus now from Ezerum to go to, uh, to uh, what's the capital of Te Tehran right. in, uh, in Iran, right? Mm -hmm. And they still had the Shah. Mm -hmm. This yeah, is 1971, the Western, yeah, the Western yeah. Shah, yeah. And, and put in there by America and the yeah. CIA and so yeah. on, right? 
because they wanted the oil. It was right. all right there. So we're on that. And then as we're going through uh, the back end of, of Turkey and into uh, Iran, just north of Iraq, we go past Mount Ararat. When we're on the bus, I'm looking over, and they somehow, that's, that's Mount Ararat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's where the ark landed, right? So I'm looking over, and all of a sudden I see there's a gigantic rainbow right over the ark. I mean, right on, not the ark. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I didn't see the ark. I was a little far right. away. But no, it's this beautiful this mountain. It's this beautiful mountain sticks out solely all by itself. There's wow. no other real mountains yeah. around. And it's snow-capped. It's just gorgeous, right? So I'm looking, and I realized that no one else other than Murray and I see this rainbow, right? That nobody's paying any attention. We're, Holy mackerel, this Mount Ararat, we see a rainbow. So we took that as a good sign yeah. that this was like, this was an auspicious journey, yeah. shall we say. Then we made it through Iran. But Iran was heavy at that point. It was heavy. It was so heavy. It wasn't quite so heavy when I was there because... I, it, when I was there in 77, it was right yeah, before I Oh, that Shah. was when it was really... Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. still the yeah. Shah, but it was going down. Yeah. And people were just, like, afraid to talk. I mean, we yeah. had a guy come up to us crossing a street. And in Iran, that was the worst traffic I've ever seen. Oh, crazy, crazy, drivers. crazy drivers. I mean, it's literally... You would stand on one sidewalk... And when you had a critical mass of enough people, everyone would move on, you know... To, to cross the street. To cross the street. Oh, it was the just, only you, can't, way. you can't run over that many people. Yeah. Like no, that. because it, was a lot, it wasn't it was traffic lights, and it was traffic circles. And so we, so were, never we were in one of these things where, like, <laughs> we're going across in this pack of people, and I'm kind of in the middle, and there's this guy behind me, and he whispers in English, if you want to know what's really going on in Iran, follow me at a distance. What? I couldn't resist, of course. So we followed him at a distance. And we get to a place, and you know we're kind of watching. He goes down these stairs. So we kind of look around a few seconds later. We go down these stairs into this apartment. I just remember he had a pillow. He puts the pillow over the phone. The whole thing, I'm like, holy shit, these people are serious. And it was like, he just wanted to tell us no, about how yeah. hard it was, yeah. how horrible it was living under the Shah. So he was obviously going to be one of the Ayatollah people that he was going to be revolting. Well, but it was also the secret police. The Stasi were the secret yeah, police. Yeah, they were Sabak. just taking Sabak. people Okay, Sabak, right. right. Yeah. I guess they Stasi some other group, in. right. I think it's, it's uh, another East similar, Germany. Similar style, yeah. right. Same Sabak. Same and so they were all totally afraid of the secret. Because I was there several years earlier, and the same thing happened to me. Yeah. Some guy says, come along, we went over into it, and he was telling, this is just terrible, it's crazy, you know, it's like the yeah. oppression and so on. But they traded in for another kind of oppression. Yeah, right, right. it was but, still just yeah. as bad. But what and then I, when you get to the border of Iran, um, the train stops. There's no train going through Afghanistan. So once you get into Afghanistan, it's got to be buses or no bullet carts or whatever you find. Right? Yeah, well, partly because no, no foreign power ever conquered yeah. Afghanistan. Right. England didn't get the chance yeah. to put them right? in. Yeah. Even Alexander the Great never conquered never uh, Afghanistan, conquer. right? So you can catch a camel, yeah. though. Well, I mean, yeah. it's like trying to conquer Nevada. You're there, and you're like, yeah. I mean, am I winning? I don't yeah. know. Well, see, like, there's a, there's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, right. But there's a it very big... Yeah. Nevada, though. Con yeah. Afghanistan's worth well, conquering. Wait, got a the best more, wait a few more years, Nikki. I think they're probably going to have some pretty good hash these days in Nevada. It's not going to be as good as Afghanistan. That's true, that's true. Two-toke blackout. That's what everybody called it. Yeah. Well, they called it Chadas there, right? That was the name. For it. I can't and wait till so we can uh, freely travel to Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. What a great country. That was a great country. I would just country. love to check yeah. out See, the thing great, about Afghanistan is what, culture, the, culture. what the Western, Western people never understood about Afghanistan 
is that it's still, after all these thousands of years, organizing according to tribes. Mm -hmm. Large tribes, yes. right? But they, you know, they do speak sort of a similar language, but each tribe has its own customs, way of dressing. You can always tell what tribe they're from, right? Yeah. And so they're always fighting each other yeah. unless there's a foreign invader. Yeah. <laughs> and then they usually get together yeah. to fight the invader, right? <laughs> Uh, but they're such proud people. They they're are just totally beautiful yeah. people. Yeah. You know, big and strong, and and the women are handsome. Yeah. You know? But there's I also mean, that's what they always say about <laughs> it. They're just like these strong, willed, well, beautiful yeah, because people. the, the climate there is so yeah, stressful and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, like there are almost no trees. The there's yeah. almost no trees. It's yeah. all rocky. And yeah. every once in a while, you'll be traveling along on this total dirt road. There's maybe two or three other vehicles you see, and up on this hill, you see a, a fortress. Yeah. That's sort of an adobe, you know. It's like it's brown. Like you can't wow. probably stone covered stuff. But and and it's just it's basically it's a what would you call it? It's a fortress up on the uh, hill. It was just yeah. like going back in time. It was like oh, every yeah. movie you ever saw as a kid that you loved. There are no cars I mean, in the it's, country. It's probably a little. I, I imagine those fortresses are the same. Kabul is probably very different. Well, a lot of it's we blown up by now too. Yeah, Kabul is face it because the Russians were there, the Americans um, were. But I was there. I think was the Shah still there in Afghanistan? The king. The king was there. Separately. Yes, separately, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, we did I, our first trip to India totally separately. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I was with an old boyfriend at the time. He was with his old ex, and um, yeah. But this is the trip you're talking about. The, the trip the right first, now, you guys. Yeah, we both, both did. We both, we both did it separately. But yeah, yeah. The whole, and India was your was that your India goal was kind of the goal. Yeah, yeah, it right, was yeah. the goal that you right. want to get to. Or and also Nepal. You get to India and then usually do it in Nepal. And then other people actually then actually went on to Afghanistan, to Indonesia and Bali and things like that. We didn't do that. We never did Bali, did we? Never been to Bali. Or Indonesia. Spent a lot of time in Thailand. But I got busted in Afghanistan, so I had to. Once they let me, gave me back my passport, I had to get out of there pretty fast. Plus it was hash? Yeah, it's just the stupidest <laughs> thing. You know, it's well, like yeah. we were going through and we, you know, been there a couple of weeks. We were going to keep going and we just had this hash. It was so good. There was no way I was going to throw out this hash. So we thought, okay, we're just going to press it really thin. Okay. And I remember just sitting in this funky flea-ridden hotel, just like pressing this stuff, you know, as thin as you could. And then we're going to put it into this envelope. So we had two envelopes we're going to send to our friends in Marin County, they were. And and we put photographs in, because now, you know, there's photographs. It just feels like there's photographs in here. And then we go to the post office. And in those days, you know, you had, a lot of countries were like that. You couldn't just buy a stamp. You had to take your envelope to the oh, desk where they would weigh it. it. Gotcha. And then and so and they had hand my boyfriend it. was pretty cool in, in the way it actually ended up being smart when he said, you go in and do that. I have something else to do. So, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I go in totally oblivious to the fact the main police station is right next door to this oh, post no. office. I can't read Afghani. I can't read, you know, Parsi, what it's saying. Yeah. And so I get, I get in there. And they just look at me, and they look at these envelopes, and they take a knife, and there's two guys behind the counter, and they slice it open. I'm like, just like what that. What are you doing? You can't open my mail thinking I'm in America. Uh, you know, like this is like this like is my property. You can't, can't do watch. that. Oh, well, ma'am, look what's in here. Oh no, this is a whole trip. And so they, oh, um, no. so then one of them says, I'm a cop, right? Oh God, okay. And and but really, I'm just mailing it for someone that was in our guest house. You know, I don't know anything about it. I go through the whole story, and they take me in the back room. And this is the weirdest part. Nobody knows about this. 
the Germans were running Afghanistan before the Russians had it. Did you know that? So they took me, yeah, I mean, all the cops drove Mercedes and BMWs, and, and there were just German people there a lot. But then they take me in the back room, a little dark, tiny room, and they, just like out of those old World War II movies, put this bright light right on my what? face so I can't see anything. Yeah. And all I hear is this voice. Where were you on the night of last Tuesday? We think we saw you with a suspected big smuggler. You know, and it's like, whoa, whoa, did I just enter a bad World War II movie? What the hell? And seriously, and I'm like, I don't know anyone here. Believe me, I'm honest, I'm innocent. You know, I just like got here. I don't know anyone. And they just totally, we can put you away for six years. Like six years for four grams of hash? He's like, we can do anything we want with you. You speak now, you tell us. I said, I know nothing, I know nothing. So they take me to jail, and they put me in jail, and that was a fab fabulous experience, actually. I know that sounds weird, but I was only in there for one night. Okay. Because I got a very good public, well, actually my boyfriend that was on the outside got the public defender. And um, to only be there one night, like I didn't realize I was having a good time at the time, because I thought I'd be there for six years, but, um, it was amazing, you oh, know, no just to get that experience of inside of an Afghani jail in 1977. And it was like you walked through My all these love. different, you know, checkpoints and you got into this one. There were all these different courtyards. So they put me into this one courtyard, this square thing, and all off the edges of it are just these little tiny rooms. And the rooms are just simply a little box with a piece of wood across the back half of it. And that's where you slept. You had to bring your own food or someone had to bring you your food. You had to bring in your own cook stove, everything. And you brought your kids to jail. So all of these women had their like kids up to 12 years old running around in the jail. Uh, if the father couldn't, you know, no one else could take care of them or whatever. And, and these women were having so much fun because they were free. They didn't have to wear the whole right. you know, burqa, the like, whole thing. Well, because see, Afghanistan women wear a burqa, which oh, yeah. is completely head no, to totally toe covers all yeah. the way down they with were, just a little crisscross around our eyes. They all had like right. mini skirts on and they were putting on all this makeup. We spent the gotcha. night like they so taught like me belly dancing. Zone where like, and, yeah, and they had like this one girl from Iran, she'd gotten busted for um, smack, smuggling smack, I think. And so she had a little a boom box because she was like a nightclub singer and everyone's dancing and partying we had so much fun and then at a certain point one girl had an epileptic seizure so that brought on the guards and then we had to all quit and you know it's like i was saying how can i stay in here for six years this is amazing because the toilet consisted of just a around the edge of this square the courtyard in the middle where they dried their clothes and did all their stuff there was just like this little you know eight inch gully or what do you call oh. it they just went around and that's where you did your business oh. right outside of your front door oh. yeah it was it was bleak oh. and these people were a lot of girls were but sick. tell why why all the women were in jail in the first place well i kept asking no one spoke english right so it was like you know are you here you know why are you here? oh hashish oh hashish hashish why are you here and they just all kept going like this so later i asked our public defender who we became good friends with so what's this mean oh they all killed their husbands oh because their husbands are so cruel to them. So that's why they'd rather be in jail having a good time. I mean, if you're being yeah. tortured or, or, yeah. or yeah. in that trip. And so so the, um, wow. the the DA ended up inviting us over to his house several times while I had to wait like two months to get my whole court case thing through. And by the end of it, 
He full on wanted to get into a smuggling operation with us. He says, I can get you these dolls and you take what? home these dolls and I'll keep the, sending them to you in California. Yeah, can we do this? And I'm like, man, I just got out of jail. Are you I don't just setting think me so. up, bro? Like, I don't you? think so, you know? No. And then when I finally, after you know, two months of every day except for Friday, which was their holy day, I would have to go to the courthouse in Kabul, which, you know, is now all bombed up. I've seen yeah. pictures of it. And I'd have to go in there and push my papers in from one This is like Franz next, Kafka, uh, the, the trial, but except I mean, it's, it's in Arab you know, or it's in Farsi. If, with if, if I hadn't done that, I would have still been there. Absolutely. I had to be there to keep, because it took like 45 signatures, and I had to make sure it got to each one of these people, you know. And then finally they said, okay, tomorrow you finally get to meet with the main judge. So, you know, I've been down in the shithole rooms on this courthouse where it's just stinks of urine. It was just disgusting. And the last day, they take me up to the top floor. And here's this gorgeous office. You know, it's just like nice carpets, fancy furniture. And the judge was sitting at this big, nice, beautiful wooden table. And he says, you know, the whole thing. Okay, no, I said, no, really, I was just mailing it for someone else. I would never, you know, this isn't what I, you know, sorry to talk like that. The way out of it. And so he says, okay. So we, we give you a $100 fine. And so I pulled out my fake student ID and said, I'll give you 50, and he went for it. Seriously. <laughs> you could even bargain with the judge. I figured you bargained for everything in this country, yeah, right, so yeah. it couldn't hurt, you know? Yeah. So for 50 bucks, they gave me back my passport and said, get out of here by tomorrow. Yeah. Oh and so God. I had to get on the first bus out of uh, Afghanistan, yeah. or at the first car over the Khyber Pass, yeah. actually. So my oh, Afghanistan yeah. story yeah. has to do with the dinars I got in Romania. Okay. Right? So we went across uh, Af uh, Iran and buses and so on. And then the buses you get in, in Afghanistan are like those old school buses, right? Yeah. You know, with that kind of door that goes like uh -huh. this, you know. And they're just total rattletrap beat up because they're rejects from everywhere else, right? So at the border, uh, we come in and uh, um, there's all these guys on the bus coming in from Iran, which now is a modern country in those days, right? And these guys are really fat, really large, and really huge, right? And it's okay. So they get all off the bus, but the bus stops just before the customs, just before the border, and they all run off into the darkness, <laughs> right? They all run off into the night, right? <laughs> and so then the next morning, we all have to come to go through customs, because we didn't do it the night before, right? And so... Uh, then I'm out there waiting for customs, and while I'm out there, this guy's trying to sell me hash. We're still in the customs compound in, in <laughs> Afghanistan. He's trying to sell me hash. So I actually buy some hash, right, from him, and I pay oh. him with the dinars, right? Because he wanted dinars because he had American money. He had French money. He had German money. He didn't have dinars. And so he was kind of like my collecting different kinds of currency. I paid him some dollars, too, I'm pretty sure, right? But he really wanted those dinars. So I'm trying to figure out how much did I change for these dinars? What were they worth in American dollars? And then well, what's the, de the designation? The Afghani. What, in Afghani. And how much is an Afghani worth in a dollar? So I'm saying, okay, dinars to dollar, Afghani to dollar. And so, okay, so we made a trade, right? And so it was really funny. <laughs> so I get this thing. And, we're, and now, I, now I'm, smo I'm drinking tea with the head of customs. He just, we're having lovely tea ceremony, right? right. Uh, just after I bought the hash. And then all of a sudden, I see these guys I saw on the bus last night, <laughs> and they've all lost 100 pounds, right? Right. Because <laughs> right? they wore these really loose clothing. Right. And when they came in from Iran, a modern country, 
they had smuggled in like hundreds of shirts and pants all underneath their clothing. Well, they had toasters and then. Oh, but they had everything. They were just, I mean, they literally yeah, were like, you know, they were like four feet wide, gotcha. right? In the, and all of a sudden now they're skinny guys, right? It was really funny to see. That. And everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew what was going on, right? And they would tip off the the, the, the customs agent and so on. But then, when, then right at that border, that was a town called uh, Hirat. It's mm-hmm. the first it's the most western western side of, of uh, Afghanistan and you come in there and all of a sudden like he said you're back 500 years yeah. ago right wow. there's one car maybe there's camels there's wow. horses there's yeah. horse carts people walking along everybody and they're all dressed in the, in their ancient costumes right? I haven't mm-hmm. changed and then there's this amazing mosque there it's just adobe on the outside but inside there's these turquoise tiles this amazing tile work wow. and so on and, and they had the best, best non there in these mm, little things. Oh, it's just <laughs> great, right? But it was just, you were way back in time. Yeah. Wow. And, it was, uh, and I was noticing that, that all the buildings were sort of like not square. I mean, they were all just sort of curved. Well, what was I smoking at that point? That all the buildings yeah, were square, but it was like, falling apart <laughs> is what it was. Yeah. 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 Well, they were mud brick, right? So yeah, they were just uh, kind of shifting all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. then I, uh, I, Mireille and I took the bus to uh, Kandahar first and then to uh, Kabul. And then in Kabul, we heard about this place right in the middle of the country of Afghanistan. And first of all, there's a town called Bamiyan, which is a village, right? right? And then beyond that is a place called Bandiamir, Mm -hmm. and that means chain of lakes. Mm -hmm. So here's a country where there's no water, there's no trees, there's nothing, and all of a sudden, in the very middle of the country, is this chain of lakes, and they're turquoise blue and totally pure, right? But it's really in the middle of nowhere. So we go to Bamiyan, and the great thing about Bamiyan, it's a beautiful village, all mud huts and so on, irrigation and rice fields and so on and so forth. But outside the town are these giant cliffs, two or three hundred feet high. Carved into the cliffs are these giant Buddhas. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, they were standing Buddhas, right? And there were also little tiny little caves, and it had been a major Buddhist center. The reason being that you could get there easily from India, but from there you went on the Silk Road into China, all the way the back into China, all the way eventually to Beijing, right? Wow. But through the Taklamakan and down into yeah, Afghanistan, yeah, right? Yeah. So, right. So here was the thing, and that's why it was the Buddhist thing. And now, even when I was there, the uh, the faces and the groins. Yeah, they tend to go for the private The, the faces and the groins were destroyed. But, you know, people just, they're yeah. Muslim and they're just taking pot shots at this thing. Target practice, right? Crazy. But the, you're talking about somewhat, I don't know, when it was in the 90s, they just yeah. blew them all up. But wait, right. did you hear about the, what happened after that when Afghanistan, after the Russians left and it kind of semi-opened up again? So there was a French archaeologist who had done all of this... Um, He'd been studying it for years before the Russians came in, and then he got kicked out. But he was convinced that there was another Buddha at that site. So as soon as he could, he went back in. And so here's the cliff with all of the Buddhas on it. Uh Right in front of it, lying down, was a reclining Buddha that was under the ground. Well, no, they they mounded it it over. Yeah, they had to unearth it and, and reveal it. And it, so there's this whole perfect still reclining Buddha there. I, I haven't yeah. seen any pictures of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have so seen anyway, it. So it's just so everybody That's knows cool. that the reclining Buddha is not asleep. <laughs> He's in the process of dying. 
That's what it symbolizes. Anywhere oh, you see that. a reclining Buddha, that's the symbology of, of the oh, wow. of the icon, shall we I say? He was just hanging out. Having no, he wasn't. Oh. No, he was dying, and so in his, he was probably having a good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in his fullest presentation, right? In his fullest presentation, there uh, there are people surrounding him, taking care of him. This right? sounds a lot like Timothy Leary. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. But and, 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 and then his last message, his last message was to take refuge in the in the Dharma, yeah. right, which is his teaching, yeah. take refuge in the Buddha himself, and uh, take refuge in the Sangham, which is the the community of monks on the path. Yeah. So you can get your support, your reaffirm, your your reaffirmation, and so on, and your expansion through the teachings of the Buddha, the example of Buddha himself, and, and, and the other Buddhists, uh, other people on the way. And Buddha, one, of, one of the things that I got mostly from the Buddha uh, when I studied him for a little while was basically, in a nutshell, he says, don't believe me. Correct. Do the work. See, see if it yourself. does it for you, yes, right? Sir. Just don't take anything on just absolute believing Agreed. in someone else. Create that. And so that's the other thing. You know, you can't, it's not good enough to read about yoga or read about these things. You need to do, do it. Do yeah, Buddha, it. Buddhism in its simplest form isn't really a religion as yeah. much as a method or modality for navigating yes. one's life. Right. I, I think. Right. That's true. Right. Because it's, yeah. it's not like, believe me, there's this, you know, the spirit, spirit guy's going to, and it kind of evolves right. as, it, as it meets some, yeah, yeah. some indigenous cultures. It kind of evolves yeah. to a more shamanic and uh, well, there, there are many ways in which Buddhism <coughs> well, has and, become and a religion, well, but it didn't start that yeah, way. There's yes, different schools of Buddhism, yeah. too. I yeah. mean, some of them you are in control, and others are almost more like Christianity, where you have to have the priest do it. Correct. So, yeah. But, you know, I just want to say, I just thought of something that I think will interest you. Because you brought just the Tim, you said the death, you said the Tim mm -hmm. Leary thing. Um, and I know you love psychedelics, too. So we had a very, very dear friend of ours passed away very recently. Uh, Michael Gosney and Michael was very big in psychedelic world and he's been a good friend of Tim Leary's and when Michael died like he had very bad cancer and he's basically told the doctors I don't want to do the morphine I want to be conscious I really want to experience this because kind of every time we take acid it's sort of like looking around that edge you yes. know getting to that corner so he really wanted to make sure he got to experience this full on so as he was dying at home in the hospital bed with all his family and stuff around, he's lying in bed. He'd, every so often he would open his eyes you know, on the last day and kind of kept really quiet. And then at the very last time he opened his eyes and his daughter and his granddaughter were standing right next to him. And he just stares into the eyes of his granddaughter who's just like six months old or something. And all that he said was, and it just came like right from deep within him. He just said, Wow. And then he died. So that's from a real psychedelic warrior yeah, yeah, that yeah. obviously wanted to be conscious to see what that was like right when you're about to die. Yeah. And from his expression, I'd say it was pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's encouraging. Yeah. It's very yeah. encouraging. Right. It's so interesting the, the amount of times I've been to places that seem to be this place beyond or between birth and death. and there's not even as much of a discovery as a return to a knowing of, oh, of course, there's no Return to a knowing. I love Every that. Time, That's it's like, right. Oh, yeah, this, of yeah. course. Yeah. I know this. Yeah. Right? And I usually get to the point where I'm like, I really would just like to have eyeballs again so I can like see nothing for a minute. Yeah, like, right. Just seeing every direction everywhere well, constantly. But if we cool talk about reincarnation, you have any idea that that might be some sort of real truth. I think it may you, be. But then yeah. you have to realize, well, the, in the Hinduism, we talk about 
you can possibly have 84,000 reincarnations, right? Well, first of all, it means that we've been through it so many times before. So now it's so easy for me to sit here and say there's no reason to be afraid of it, right? It's very easy to say that. But as our friend Michael, when he was there, right? And the other thing about the Leary thing is that Michael became good friends with Leary at the end of Leary's life and talked to him, as I recall, the day he died, right? And so on. And, and then he, and like uh, two weeks before, uh, Tim had left a phone message on, on, on Gaza's phone. And so he actually recorded it and played it for us. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Hope this, this sort no, just but there was something about he didn't get the message yeah, till after until he after died. he died. Oh, and wow. it blew his mind. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, before uh, Michael went out, now uh, Nikki and I had the, the privilege of hanging out with him for a couple hours in his, in his uh, hospital room, right? And so for a certain point, he and I were just there alone. Nikki hadn't come up to the room yet. And so I remembered about how, you know, uh, how Leary had taken acid on, on his way out, right? Yes, sir. And so I talked to Michael directly about that because then he told me a story about how they were and so on. And so there's this idea of, well, Michael had taken so much acid, he didn't really need to do acid at that moment. He just wanted to not be dulled from the, the, the morphine, right. Yes. right, and to experience it that way. And so, and so that's what I think is one of the great um, teachings that comes from LSD, if maybe one of the very best, is that, you know, when it does take us, LSD, DMT, ketamine, any of these things that take you to that edge, right? So it teaches you to not be afraid. It really does. It teaches you that death is beautiful. And by knowing that, it's not like, oh, I want to go out and commit suicide and check this out. But it's more like, I can live my life without fear, you know, of what that's going to be. That's what, that's a great gift. And, and that is that a realization. Gift. That's it's a huge gift. Between between terror and joy and acceptance. Yeah. Still to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for me, the only terror is, I feel really sorry for the person that has to go through my bookkeeping and keep the <laughs> in my house. <laughs> um, Figure it out, right? You know, I mean, it's more of a compassionate fear, like that poor person. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, you know, I mean. You're gone. You don't give a shit at that point. Right. You know, really. The suffering right? is always the people you know? who are who are behind yeah. and missing that yeah. that energy and so on. But see, now there's also where are we here now in the state? Is there a consciousness between life and death, or is it all one consciousness? Right. And so that when someone leaves their physical body, you know, there's you know we're talking about ghosts and all those things. Well, there's so much real there, right? That the presence of that consciousness most often lingers for a certain time after death. And then there's a certain point at which that psychic consciousness entity needs to be granted the permission to leave, so to speak, right? So how, when, the, when the ghost is hovering around, so the way you get, let the ghost go free is to let it go free and to say you need to be one with the essence and if you need then to be come back again to complete your karmas that you didn't complete, then that's what's going to happen. Uh, and so how, when you say 84,000 reincarnations is kind of you know, normal, it turns out that, oh, I'm here again, right? Do, do I, how much do I have to learn? And at this point when I'm in these conversations with people, I usually bring up Groundhog Day. 
You remember exactly. that movie? It's like yeah. how that many times exactly, do you have to yeah. go through it yeah. to yeah. go you through? You're right, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> right, but not not to be an egomaniac jerk yes. with the people around you. Yes, so sir. to to love them, but love them to let them be who they are. Right, yes, and so how many times you have to play through that action? And it took him the whole movie to get get it all done right and how many times he wakes up oh it's the same time it's the same day right. over again but that's in a nutshell sort of what what but, the car yeah, but reincarnation i don't i'm not so sure it has to always be in a human form no it does it's not probably, the it doesn't have to be on just this planet probably not no so, we're talking I mean, consciousness eighty four thousand is nothing when you look at these pictures of the galaxies they're coming out with right right that's true i that's mean true. we don't even have a chance no. to get to a right. minute part of the but universe but as an insect how long that? is that lifetime that's As an insect, could be a quickie, could be a day, could be a, yeah. and but the I think then what the way the way the way you make a teaching out of that is to say, if you're a good bug, <laughs> you get promoted to the next level, right? <laughs> how do you how do you not be a I mean, bad bug? You know, I mean, you accept your life the way it is and perform your actions yeah. according to the Buddhist teaching, which yeah. is the eightfold noble path. Yeah. Right, and that's to say, okay, how do you live a good life, carry on for your people, and not create new negative karmas that you then have to right. work out later in another lifetime? Right? right. So the Hindu teaching is that you know we have three levels of karmas, right? And the three levels of karmas are first of all the one that you're given in this lifetime to work out. Okay. And no matter how quote enlightened or whatever you are in this lifetime, yes, you have tough. to work those out. Yes. Right. And some of that is like who your parents are, you know, where you grew up, what your astrological sign is. Those are like now, the, that's your assignment yes. for this lifetime, right? Yes, and how you deal with it then is like you get through those. Now, in addition to that lifetime karma you have to work out, they, there's claimed to be two other kinds of karma. One is like the karma you have in the bank that you won't work out this lifetime, but you might get a chance to work out in the next lifetime. And by that we sort of say that like, if I have a relationship with someone and I do them dirty, right, next time around, they get the opportunity to do me dirty, whatever that means, right? Maybe it's also like this lifetime I'm a male, next lifetime maybe I'm a female. Yeah. This lifetime I'm the father, maybe next lifetime I'm the daughter, whatever it is. Those roles then reverse as you go through. So you get a chance to do the karma and you can pay them back or... You can transcend it and let it go and say, I don't have to pay you back, right? That's right. where it is, right? So those are the karmas still in the bank. So if you don't get through this lifetime as a, quote, quote, enlightened being, you still have to work on those next lifetime, right? right. Now, then the third kind of karmas are the ones you now create in this lifetime, right. right? That then would have to be redone in a future lifetime. And in that sense, we say there's not necessarily so much difference between good karma and bad karma. Because if it's good karma for a sort of selfish purpose, then that still has to be repaid. So it's like a bank account, right? So the old karmas are still in the bank. You, you got your cash on this karmas this time, and are you making new deposits? It has to be repaid. And that's what, where the noble eightfold path of Buddhism comes along. This is how you can live your life not making new karmas yes, that then have to be paid out in a future lifetime, but you're still working out these today that you had your assignment. So you have to try to really be an amazing loving being for no reason at all. <laughs> really, that's what it comes down to. You have to really yeah. you have to give it all you got for no purpose. And even if you yeah. if you right. start looking at scientifically yeah. like the fact that we live in, in a 
infinite space that's at least 65 yeah. billion years old, maybe as old as infinity may never end. Like, uh, that's really what I started to see the vision. But of. consciousness first, doesn't end. Th that's what I'm saying. At, right. first, at first it started in, in, my, in my, I guess, spiritual as well as psychedelic journeys inside of myself and the things I learned, you know, it was these levels, these levels, these levels, but to where I finally got to where there seemed to be a lot of purpose. I was really, I was also very into Hinduism and Buddhism and I was really structuring my life in a certain way and not doing any drugs and, and doing a lot of meditation and wow. really getting myself totally lined up. And then I had this huge vision of, of, of the actual infinitude of everything and how it was everything. And then I realized that enlightenment and all of that and nirvana, there's really no purpose to any of it because what we actually have is infinity. And so we're going to have to do something no matter what. Yeah. So like even, oh, I've attained nirvana. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. We'll still like infinity. So now Oh, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know I mean? No, there's an old saying. Oh, you're light and sweet. So yeah. like, okay, cool. Now it's 3.30. Yeah. Like, now what? Yeah, right. Before enlightenment, right. chopping, chopping wood water. and carrying exactly. water. After enlightenment, chopping right. wood yeah. and carrying water. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's, I got kind of dedicated to that and to, I really went through my existential crisis by creating this uh, game wherein I really push myself for my discipline and my my ethicality and integrity in order to try to really be attractive as a beacon of how to live because there's really no point at all because we're in this infinite figure eight and it's kind of like me, 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 me. <laughs> and that's kind of my life philosophy yeah. right Interesting. did you ever get into asian martial arts yeah, I did a uh, form called Shoshu, which is a northern Chinese seven-animal form martial art. Oh, interesting. I've been doing it for some decades and teaching it. Took a break from teaching when the house burned down. Hmm. We didn't really have the room, and now that we have this big room, I'm going to start teaching it. Cool. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. But I've done a lot of fighting arts, yeah. and I got in with this teacher in L.A. I went to a class. It was I hit the last 15 minutes of a class. He showed us a little technique off a push, a little throw, and it all made sense it was kind of that same thing it wasn't like believe me or I've got superpower it was like right. here's how the body works put your hands here watch if you do this to somebody look what right. it does you know you like, can do it like too. the chin is a fulcrum if you can get somebody right here you can actually really you can do a lot to them Yeah. you can move them very easily you control their whole spine their center of gravity huh. and it just made so much sense and so then I was like alright cool I'll buy two gis and, and here's money for a year's tuition and he didn't believe me he was like I, no 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 I'm like oh, I watch and then I would go I went every day for six days a week for years after that wow really very quickly within a few months I was about six months I was helping to teach the kids class and then ten months or so I was teaching helping to teach beginners and then I started t taking over the team top student and doing the teaching ah it's interesting so we uh, what, what we're doing now in in cannabis up north is we have this program called the Gangier you probably right, heard I've about heard it, Gangier uh -huh. Council so uh, Derek uh, Gilman who is the executive director of the program and one of the person who directed us all in creating it he uh, purchased a piece of land up in Humboldt County uh -huh. in a little town called Miranda, right on Salmon Creek. Okay. Now, if any of you know anything about Humboldt and Miranda and Salmon Creek, it is like kind of like ground zero of some of the most bestest Humboldt cannabis growers for the last yeah, 70, the 80 years. Right yeah, all yeah. of that stuff, right? And so he w got this property, which is up on top of a hill, a mountain about you know, 1,100, 1,200 feet, just above the Salmon Creek, and the previous owner was a master kung fu artist, right? Oh, wow. And he bought that whole property and developed it because he realized he was about to pass on. Oh, wow. And he wanted to train his successor. So he invited wow. 10 of his best students to come there and to spend 10 years there. Wow. 
doing classes and so on and so forth. And so he has this beautiful exercise hall he built. There's eight cabins. There's a, there's a, a 20-sided circular building where he lived and so on, meditation wow. rooms and so on. And it's just this total retreat up on top of the hill. So he, after 10 years... He found his successor. He chose one out of the ten? One out of the ten. Wow. Right? And wow. Then, then sold the property and moved on. And that's, what? The, that's where we're now teaching Don GA. Wow. And I can feel it up there. I mean, you, if you went up there, you would just feel... feel yeah, No, it's truly amazing. And so, like, when I do my morning meditation up there, it's really on point. I mean, it's really, really good. And so we're... Te and, they, and the students come up from all over the United States. We had a, a young man from, from France for this one, right? We've wow. had somebody from Germany. We've had people from Jamaica. But, you know, we had Louisiana, a guy from New Orleans, <laughs> a guy, guy, a former Secret Service agent from... <laughs> wow, now living in Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, seriously, really? it's a crazy thing, wow. right? And and so, but they all come up there and they're just blown away by being. And then we, uh, on one of the days, we go and visit a local farm. Right. Now, here you are on a farm at this ground zero of the cannabis world in the, right. in the center of the Emerald Triangle, and you're on a farm where they've never allowed an unknown person to come to that farm. Wow. And all of a sudden, they've got 15 Ganjie students right. right there. It's like... I mean, this is just pretty amazing for these wow. people, right? And so we do a two-day intensive training on basically sort of more or less modeled after the Emerald Cup protocol and so on. And, but much no, more, no, mu really. it's much more detailed. It's much more detailed than that. And, and certainly being judges in the Emerald Cup all these years is, comes in very handy. <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah. it's a frame of reference for it. You know, when yeah. you've done, now what, three or 4,000 samples for the Emerald Cup over well, the years. At least. I mean, think about it. Some years we had 600. <laughs> I think you should probably, you should take them all and kidnap them for a week. And, and help have us. Them just, like, listen to the Grateful Dead <laughs> and eat high doses of acid yeah. and mushrooms and uh -huh. smoke weed like eight well, hours mostly, a day yeah. for a Some week. of them are actually brand newbies. Oh, right. but that's what I'm saying is you got to give them the whole experience. Yeah. Right, you, know, you get these ones from Nebraska that have never like really smoked anything good. You can put them in, have them put them in a circle of trust. Well, yeah, well, so, yeah, but some of them are actually starting a new career. They're just no, like, it's, it's yeah, amazing, fifty yeah. years old, fifty-five yeah. years. Old. I'm just fed up with that to, stuff, like, and now I'm going to need like a cultural experience. Too. Oh, yeah, it's a cultural yeah. experience, right? So we had this thing on my farm called the Circle of Trust. You know the orange barrels, the orange with the two-part lid that you can bury weed in. Oh, yeah, 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 right. So I would put mine well. I constructed them like Oak Island uh, pirate treasure holes, where I would. I'd, I'd put them more than a foot underground the surface. I'd make a nice cabinet top. I'd put in probably about a foot of gravel around them, and huh. then I'd put in a train that would go like 300 really? yards in the forest. Yeah. So, like, it could be raining, and the thing would just be, like, immaculately dry. Oh, seriously? It's yeah. brilliant. Wow. Yeah, I just, well, I, I've always been into pirate stuff. So I made these elaborate pirate traps. But what we would do with anybody who went beyond trimming who worked with us is they'd have to get into the Circle of Trust. And what the Circle of Trust was is... We'd make you dig up the hole, and then we'd open it up, and we'd show it to you. And then you would get in there, and then we would put the lid on. Oh, jeez. And then we would close it up, oh, and then we would put the dirt God. on it until you couldn't hear us talking anymore. Oh. And then we would smoke a joint and laugh a little bit and giggle, and then we would dig you back up, and you'd be reborn into the circle of trust. Oh. And it's like if you weren't willing to get into the circle of trust, like you weren't allowed to work there. Uh -huh. It was like, if you don't trust me, I can't trust you. Sorry. Like, yeah. So you were and in there for like maybe half an hour or something? No, no, you were five minutes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it seemed like forever. It seemed like forever. And I was the first one to do it, right? Because it was me and my buddy Joe, and, and we were coming up with the ideas. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm like, no, I'll do that. I'll do it. I'll do it first watch, dude. And so I did it, and I jumped in. It was so crazy because we were growing so weed. We were growing a lot of weed. So much weed. 
so much weed, and I was always like four grand. I was getting four grand a pound for outdoor. Right. And those then I'm days. in this barrel, and like, I can't. There's no purchase. Like, even if I had a knife, then what? You know what I mean? Like, there's just no nothing, way. and you really are confronted with it at home. Like, wow. Could you stand up in it? No. No. So you're just like squished up. You're just. There's not much oxygen in there. There's not. Yeah. No, it's a pretty severe scene. Yeah. 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 But then you're reborn, and you yeah. love your friends uh -huh. so much. Mm -hmm. They like they got you out. Yeah. yeah. Well, we had an experience somewhat similar to that in a different circumstance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, at Chittananda. Oh, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, similar. Well, the, well. the thing is that we're we're in South India and we're in this temple town, and it's a very tiny little town with a temple to the goddess, and it's very kind of primitive and so on. And it was like, was it was it the first time? I think it was, it was yeah. the very first time. When some friends had told you've got to go to this town. It's so totally Hindu. It's so ancient. It's really just it's the real thing. It's, it's still the there. Jungle. It's still alive. It's right at the edge of the jungle, sacred place for the goddess and so on. So we go and and uh, we meet a priest family and we get you know we go to the temple and so on and then uh, we're walking along through the back ways and walking along the creek and so on and we stumble upon uh, this little cave sort of thing. No, we heard the monkeys. We, we followed the we monkeys. followed the monkeys up and then we go okay. up to this this little uh, house and a porch and we meet this Baba right. Uh, and he's got a beard and long hair and so on and orange. He's a, actually quite a skinny little guy, right? And uh, and then later on we found out his name is Swami Chidananda and so on. And so we meet this guy and we just get this immediately, we just really like this guy right away, right? And he speaks very good English and we found out a little bit later that he actually had learned English in a Catholic school or something like yeah. that and, and so on. And so then he shows us to this little um, a little cave which is a meditation cave. And he tells us, yeah, he sat there in that cave for like two years or something like that. It was part of his thing. And so he says, okay, well, I'm going to put you in this cave. Okay. All right? So, <laughs> so the two of us go into the cave. And you and shut the door. It's very... It had a door. It yeah, it had a latch on the door and everything. Did you realize that when you went in the cave? Yeah, oh, kind okay. of, right? But it's, but I was probably more it. concerned about snakes and spiders. Yeah. Actually, it's actually no, it's this very like small snake cut jungle. into this what bank of a river, yeah. right? And it wasn't really finished off inside. It was really pretty crude, right? Okay. And the door it was, was like actually a hole. It yeah, was it was like a hole. hole. And the door yeah. was kind of crude also, okay. but you could kind of see there was some slats you could sort of see out. But it was enough of a door that you weren't right. getting out. Yeah, and so but yeah, yeah, so we yeah no we weren't gonna get and so we're in there and it's like we don't know this guy. He doesn't know us. And we'd actually heard stories of other things, of things that happened to people like that. But he said, go in there and meditate. So we had we, no idea how much time he'd leave us in there. And <coughs> we did. We just got into meditation. Yeah. It was very easy to get into meditation right, right. in this place, actually. But there was a certain point. Once I forgot yeah. about the spiders. Yeah, but there was yeah, a certain right. point of, yeah, do we trust this guy? Right? right, right, right exactly. And we heard stories of people having been done that and then ripped off. Right. right? So on and so forth. So oh it was... <laughs> And so that was like, and I don't know, how long was it? It seemed like forever in some ways. It was right? okay, it changed it was our a, lives. It was how a, it long was did a, he keep you in the, I mean... Well, 15 minutes, I'd say, oh, at okay, least. 15 okay. to 30, 30 minutes, yeah. something like that, yeah. right? Just long enough, you're like, shit, are we ever... Yeah, yeah. is he coming back here? <laughs> it wasn't like being in an orange town, yeah, but yeah, we right. actually had air. No, yeah. that's true. But oh then, you know, at a certain point, then we ask him, he said, well, are you a guru? Are you our guru? He says, no, no, I just, sometimes I help people. What he said, right? right. I've given that guru thing up. He said, right? right. So then, what for the next ten years or so? We'd go visit him every. We'd year. go visit him every year in February and spend two to three wow. weeks there, right? 
And, uh, and every time we would just go and see him for a little while. We'd do a lot of other things. We wouldn't be with him all the time. We'd have an hour here or two hours there or something like that. And, while, and during that time, he would, there would be one sentence that he would say in our talks, and that sentence would sort of have neon lights around it or something. It would just like ring in a certain way. And then we'd go away and we'd say, oh, you remember when he said that? You know? And then, we, then we'd think about that for the next year, yeah. right? And all of a sudden come back there and then hang out with him again, and then somehow we'd go so the away. the last one that he told me, right, the most simple of all, and I, I think about it every day still, it's just three words, and it's simply have no doubt. And believe me, in the cannabis business, these are very important words. Right. And everything you do, really. Because, and what it's about is kind of getting back to that whole LSD, learning not to have fear. It's, no matter what happens, the next, you know, you lose your house in a fire. Have no doubt. It's going to work out. Yeah. Something's going to happen. Yeah. And whatever yeah. it and is, the next thing, you know, you can you kind of control done the that next ship and it's going to happen. And until you had that father happen. wiped away. Right. So have no doubt. That's meant right. to be. Right. You know, and then also, that, that, temp, that town There's is a temple, temple town dedicated to the goddess, right? And so we actually got, we got adopted by that goddess, so to speak. She became our guiding spirit, the goddess, right? And the goddess has a particular gesture, and that gesture means freedom from fear. Nice. So that's the other one that goes with have no doubt, mm -hmm. is freedom from fear. And I've thought about that so much also, which is to say, first of all, freedom from fear, the goddess has your back, right? But what is, it, it doesn't say don't be afraid. Right, no. It says freedom it. from yeah. fear, Yeah. right? And so at that point, the freedom from fear is likewise to have no doubt at a certain point and say, you know, that really hit me particularly right after I'd become Swami at this initiation at the Kumbh Mela, right, in 19, 1998, right? Oh, really? It was that recent? Well, that's what, 24, I mean, 24 years ago. <laughs> it does like seem recent. Yeah. It still does seem recent. Yeah. Although I must say the first two years were the most challenging for sure. But yeah, I was at Kumbh Mela in the 19... And Nikki and I had been there just very briefly together. And then I went back by myself, and okay. that's when I received initiation. You felt, were you working with an order or a lineage? No, I'd just been meditating uh, for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months, four times a day, and reading all the texts. And for many years, uh, off and on yoga asanas and... and me, you know, teaching some various teachers and so we on. We also spent years going to temples. Yeah, we spent, yeah, and, and meeting with priests and babas and so on. So I was really steeped in it. So I, I was ready. I had done the preparatory work, okay. right? And then at, at Kumbh Mela, I, I meet, well, okay, the story is really that I, Kumbh Mela, for those of you who don't know, is a gathering that's happened for thousands of years. It happens uh, every 12 years in one place, and then there are three other places where it happens, so it goes a cycle. This year, three years later, this, three years later, that. And they're all on the banks of the They're all on the banks of river. sacred rivers, right. And the biggest ones are in Hardwar and Allahabad in North India, on the Ganges River, the sacred river. And the biggest one can have 60 million people come to bathe in the Ganges yeah. on a particular day, it's at a particular moment, right? So uh, this was in a moment when Nikki and I had separated, 
We'd been together for many, many years, 17, 18 years, but we actually separated for six years wow, in okay. the middle of that. And I was living mostly up in the mountains, okay. and, and she was back in San and Francisco. And what is six years, Swami? I remind you, you were a celibate Swami for 20. No, but we were separated for six years, physically. You, you were living in San Francisco, yeah. and I was mostly Yeah, you would come visit. Yeah. yeah, and you would come visit me. But at any rate, so I'm up there, in the, and now I'm, I'm at this event, and I meet this Baba, right? But how did I meet him? There were other friends, other Westerners who were all hanging out. This is a real, you know, there are a whole lot of Westerners very connected with this Kumbh Mela. And this is a gathering of most of the holy men of India. I mean, tens of thousands of holy men, and there are millions of followers, right? And they're all there for the same purpose, to have a bath at a precise moment in the Ganges River. And this celebrates a mythology that happens to be when the universe was created and there's good and evil fighting, yeah. right? And so the good and evil band together to create the elixir of immortality. Yeah. They churn the Milky the Ocean, ocean right? Yeah. And they create the elixir. And the minute it's created, right, they start to fight. Because the gods want it and the demons want it, right? So the, uh, the, the Vishnu then turns into the most beautiful woman in the world, and they all, all the demons chase after her, but the gods fly away with the elixir. But they have it in a jug, right? And in the jug is the elixir of immortality. But as they fly away over India to escape the demons, four drops fall out, mm. right? Now, there's some debate as that the milky ocean was stirred up with herbs, and that maybe the herbs that they put in were cannabis, yeah. right? Yeah. The other myth is when they sailed away with the Milky Ocean, there were three, there were two seeds that fell out, and those were cannabis seeds, wow. and they fell out over the Himalayas, nice. a male and a female, and that created the cannabis out of that thing, right? So now this drop of water that, well, also, when they churned the Milky Ocean, I should complete the story, the first thing that came out of churning was the gem-bearing tree, which had diamonds and rubies and sapphires on the tree like fruits, right? And then the next thing that comes out is the wish-fulfilling cow, right? And the wish <laughs> Everyone <laughs> needs one. <laughs> right? yeah. okay. But the wish-fulfilling cow has the horns of a cow, the horns of a cow, the eyes of a human, the, the head front of the beak of a crow, right? The neck of a horse, the body of a cow with its udder, the tail of a peacock, and the fe and the wings of a swan. I mean, this is an amazing creature. It's pretty cool. They, they made this shit up on mushrooms. <laughs> the Hindu religion was found <laughs> no, by no, 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 no. They could have been on. A could lot of be things. on mushrooms. More than likely, though, they were on soma. Soma, which, which most likely was. A cannabis smoothie, because so when you do a dose, oh, I've been there when you do a dose, yeah. you are out of body yeah. and you are in fantasy land. I mean, oh, so yeah, yeah it, a real heavy dose of uh, of a liquid cannabis is oh, equal yeah. to any psychedelic, actually, oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, so th I think that's where we're talking here. Right. I'm not so sure. It was it certainly? I'm virtually convinced that soma was not. The Amanita muscara mushroom. I don't think it was the mushroom. Because I, I read now, that I just reread yeah. all yeah. those passages yeah. in the Vedas, and they always talk about it's green. Really? Do yeah. The soma is greenish tinged. Huh. Uh, I over always, and I mean, I, 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 I scanned reason. through like uh, several yeah. hundred chapters of the Rig Veda. The it's only always I green. I thought it was it's cumentous mushrooms is because I have had spontaneous channeling. Like, I learned about the Hindu religion from spontaneous mushroom vision yeah, channeling. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Not well, from reading about yeah, it. Wow. Yeah, like, right. I would see these things wow. and then I'd have to go figure out what they were. Right, right. That and some, like, a, a, like yeah. a Tashwara, some Tibetan Buddhist stuff as well. Interesting. Like, 
Yeah. The first time I saw Shiva got turned onto the whole thing, I was yeah. like seeing Shiva dancing in front of me while I was doing yeah. Qigong stuff yeah. in the desert. Wow. And then it turned into this field of like Shiva and Shakti doing like the dances and the poses. Uh-huh. And then it was like this fractal field of them everywhere. And, and you know, and then I'm like, oh, what is this? And I have to go home and like get in the library and yeah. figure out like. Oh, I love it when you have the vision first and find out yeah. what it is like, later. What is oh, yeah. What What's going on here? Exactly. And, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then yeah. when I found that Ganesha rode a little mouse as his mouth, I was like, these, they're f-. and they venerate the cow. And I'm like, these, they're high. These yeah, motherfuckers yeah, yeah. are high. Well, now the cow, the wish-fulfilling cow, is the, yeah. the crow, the, the, the that horse, you know, with wings and so on. So they're just out, right? I think that's my new mascot. All right. And then so the right, next... So yeah, wish-fulfilling they're, 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 cow. They're, 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 they're so in, in, um, Just so you know, in Sanskrit, the cow is called Kama Denu. K-A-M-A Danu, D-A-N-U. Which means uh, Kama is desire. And Dana was to give. So it gives you all your so it gives desires. desires. And <laughs> it, but we can then put that into your highest, purest desires. Yeah. Would be that, right? Yeah. And that's actually in one of the chakras. The wish fulfilling cow appears in one of the chakras. Yeah, yeah okay. That's a, that's a whole other story okay. later, right? Okay. So then, now the next thing that comes out of churning the Milky Ocean is Danvantara who's the, 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 the sage, the mystic creator of the Ayurvedic medicine, which is the Hindu, Hindu medicine, right? And that's from Danvantara. So he creates the whole Ayurvedic medicine thing, right? Then they're flying over. That's when the two seeds of cannabis fall out, right? And the four drops fall out. So, so now here I am in 1998 at the Kumbh Mela where one of those drops fell right. in the ancient mythology. So I'm there now. I'm, I've walked, and I, and I. But before that all happens, I'm there. But I'm standing, and I've got all these Western friends. We're hanging out, and one of them says, "You want to go help me make this movie?" I says, "Well, maybe I want to make a movie, or maybe I don't." So I'm stand. I'm literally standing on a bridge, near the Ganges River in Hardwar at the Kumbh Mela, and I say to myself, I literally, I literally talk to myself, and I say. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't figure out. Nikki and I have split up. I'm not. What, I don't know where my life is. I'm going to go with the next thing that comes along. I'm going to go with the next thing that comes along. I just said that, right? I'm on a bridge. So this short little funky looking guy with kind of smallpox on his teeth, on his face, and he's got an orange robe, and he comes up to me and he says, you're a holy man. I said, I'm not a holy man. He says, yeah, you're a holy man. I said, no, I don't know. He says, come with me. Right. So now we're walking along on this uh, tour, uh, next to the Ganges River on this embankment and we're walking along and as we're walking along I see the people and he's with me and all of a sudden somebody comes up and they drop down on their knees and they touch this guy's toes. Right? Total obeisance. Right? So okay, what's going on? I'm with this guy, right? And so now I'm on this thing and I'm I'm kind of tripping, but I probably had a, you know some some hash somewhere, but off in the distance. I see this kind of like mirage of this golden silver city up there off in the distance, crazy mirage up the river, right? So we're now on the, on the dike, on the dam on the long side of the river, and we're walking along. Again, more people are coming, touching his toes. And then we turn in this place, and all of a sudden people are giving us free food and so on. And then I realize this is a reincarnation. I've been with this guy before. Somewhere along the way, how many hundred years ago, he and I had done the same thing. We'd walked along, right? And we're just like chatting away. I don't speak much, hardly any Hindi. He doesn't speak any English, and we're just chatting away, right? And meanwhile, walking along, people are touching his toes and so on. Now we come up to this place, and I see 
wow, that kind of silvery golden city is sort of pretty close here. So we now go down to cross the river. And just as we're going to cross the river, I see this entourage of people. And there's this rather large guy, elegantly dressed. He's got a turban on, and he's literally got a third eye. In his forehead. It's like, I mean, really, it just looks to me like a third eye. And this scum guy walking behind him with this giant umbrella carrying it over him, right? And so all of a sudden I say, well, what's going on? And now the guy I'm with, my guy, he dunks down and touches this guy's toes. So I said, okay, this guy got to be some heavy dude. <laughs> and so all I do is I pranam, which means I put my hands together in the namaste and I bow down to him. I said, okay, wow, this guy. So now we go, and, and there's kind of a little pontoon bridge out to this island right in the middle of the Ganges River, the sacred Ganges River, right? And as I walk, the entire little water between the island and the bridge itself is covered in rose petals. I mean, just rose petals everywhere, right? And there's a lovely smell. So I walk, and now I'm on this island, and this is the, the golden, shimmering, silver island that I'm now on. And it's full of other babas, all sitting there camped out. So long story short, I, I camped there for five days with these people, listening to these lectures and sort of making out what they're talking. They were talking high-level philosophical Sanskrit. Well, I'm following along a little bit from all my yoga, right? And then, so I'm still with this guy, Subodhanan Saraswati, Swami Subodhanan, and we're just camping, hanging out. And then it's the day which is the most auspicious day, the most powerful day, where everybody wants to be at this one little spot in the middle of, and where it's the most sacred spot. So uh, <coughs> Subhanan says, let's go. We're going to go down and do our bath, right? So we go along. Now, this is like millions and millions of people are there, and they have all these fences made out of bamboo, and thousands of people are going this way, and we come, and we see this guard, and we, and we just go straight. So because we're sadhus, we're dressed in all oh, they let you be. We just go right where... And three times this happened. Where thousands of people are sent this way. And, and so we end up right at the very spot where you're supposed to be, nice. where everyone wants to be, nice. but we're right there. And this is this moment. And this is the, the, the royal bath. This is the day, the moment, and so on. So he says to me, okay, take your bath, right? And again, she's a sacred spot on these steps. And I look up behind me, and behind me is a statue up on a pedestal, and I turn around, and there's a statue of my ancient guru. It's uh, um, Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, right? And now he's the guy who, in the temple down in South India, the goddess temple, there's a statue of him there. Wow. And I used to sit next to that statue and meditate. Right, and he spent years there, right? So he blessed that temple. So now I am a thousand miles away up in the north, and there's that statue of the same guy, right? So I now strip down just to my underwear, and I go in the river, and I, the Ganges River. And first of all, I take a palm full of water, and I bless the north, I bless the south, the east, the west, and so on. And then I bless, the, and then as I'm about just to bless the whole universe, I feel a drop hit the top of my head. Now, this is the Kumbh Mela, this is the place, and this is where a drop of water of the sacred elixir fell how many million years ago, whatever, and it's repeated every 12 years. Symbolically, yeah. that falls again, right? And so I'm standing there, and I don't have, my head is bare, and I feel this drop hit the top of my head. And I, what I felt then was that it basically went through my entire body. The whole, the one drop, it just went right through to my pack. And I, the way I describe it, it changed the valence, the electrical charge 
of every molecule in my body at that point, all right? And, and I was fine. Wow. Just done, wow. right? Except just beginning. Yeah. <laughs> that was the rebirth we're talking about. Yeah. Right? And charged up by this drop of the elixir of immortality. And so at that point, I gave away everything I had. I just had a little lungi and so on. And uh, I even tried to give away my inheritance, but it turned out I couldn't. And that turned out to be good because it was part of our down payment for Turtle <laughs> Creek, which somehow, uh, it was my mother's inheritance. And she'd, uh, she'd already died, so I couldn't give it up. I gave up my father's inheritance and gave that to my two sons, right? But this was, so then it turned out to be part of the down payment for Turtle Creek, which is inspired by the same goddess. Right, and so we now have a goddess temple at Turtle Creek nice. to celebrate all that. Beautiful. So that's kind of the cycle that happens in, in the sequence. Yeah. So, uh, and so you ended up living with that Baba. Actually, I saw that Baba then, and I looked for him again, and I could never find him. Oh, really? Yeah, but my real teacher was in South India, Okay. the guy who locked us up in the cave. Wow. He was my real teacher, and Nikki's too. Okay. Right? And so we would constantly see him, right? So, but that's how... It was the goddess who sent me there and sent me up there and did all that stuff. How long did you stay in India for from that moment? Oh, for that, I was there for about uh, another nine months or so just okay. by myself but walking around. There for, I mean, well, I've been sta I lived been in, in India, India for, for most of 12 years. Yeah. So did right. you come back and. She would come, I would come back I, to the I, States from time. She would come visit. We were visit there me. in 86 for several months. We were there in 89 for a long time. Oh. Not to mention the back in the 70s, right? You know, right. It was like a year or so right. at a time. So when did you two get back together? <laughs> 1980. Oh, that's a long story. No, back together. No, 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 after 1980. Well, wait. Oh, no, well, wait. 1980s when we got together as a no, couple. No, but after And then after that was like... 2003 um, or something like that? Well, wait a minute. No, it was like... Well, no, 2003 we bought the land. We got back together. We, we never stopped being dearest friends. Okay. And Okay, but um, 2003, we're now... She's coming to visit me. Okay. And we go to the same town where the guru had locked us up in the cave. Okay. We're back in that same town. Okay. And, right? And um, we're meeting our guru, right, in February. And we, we're talking to him. And uh, at one point, he t we're just stopped right on the side of the road, right next to where the elephant cage was, right? Right? Another right. bridge. <laughs> another bridge. We're actually on another bridge yeah. there. And so he, we're talking. And he turns to Nikki and says, well, what do you really want to do? So, and what did you tell him? I said, I, I want to create a sanctuary, because at this point, I'd come back to San Francisco and in 96, and was really, I worked at the California Institute of Integral Studies, you yep. may have heard yeah, about yeah, the yeah. place, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and what a great place to work, I was working with Ralph Metzner and all these awesome. people, you know, she I was fundraising Roth, for them, and, um, and I did one class on the goddess that I would teach as well, and that was that was great. I made some wonderful new friends, and I really wanted to start putting on psychedelic trance raves because that's what we've been doing in Goa and in India. Word. Yeah. With Goa Gill and, and, and all knew, people, like yeah. Gill's a good friend, and we knew all these DJs. So it's like, you know, there's nothing in America still at that point. It was a very very underground scene, the whole electronic psychedelic trance scene, and there was you know these inside parties in San Francisco. There were an absolute fire trap based yeah. on some warehouses. And, yeah. and yeah. I, I was putting on all of those. I was putting on tons of those parties. Funky and Techno Tribe? You remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Exactly. Yeah, and but CCC I, I was, and Koyane really, really and those ones that. were there, and, yeah. And I was mostly the person, I was known as the altar lady because I would come in and create these big giant altars yeah. at these events. Nice. There weren't, um, there, I, I had this, I still have kind of this icon addiction. I just can't help myself from 
collecting statues of all traditions. So I really wanted to offer that up at these parties because I felt like, you know, when I was a 14-year-old kid tripping, there was nobody there to help me in the middle of the night when I was like going crazy. And right. not going crazy, but you know, right. needing a little guidance. Yeah. And so I created these altars so that at four in the morning, when the kids were tripping, they There's could come and sit to... with me and, yeah. well, and be with that. So but we, we had a life-size Buddha. Yeah, I, no, these were big statues. Brass Buddha. And, People and, could sit right next and, to the every, Buddha. But yeah. then there was the big yeah. Shiva. I mean, every every party I had more. Yeah. And every time I went to <laughs> India, I had more. See, and, that's the yeah, and they I started an getting bigger yeah. and bigger. And then eventually getting the stone one-ton one statues. Stone statues right? So I've got these like one-ton stone statues from South what? India. And where am I going to put them? And so at this point, I had started realizing that I couldn't just do these one-night raves till dawn in the city. I really needed an outdoor place where I could do parties that yeah. went all weekend and people would, you know, have a 24-hour yeah. tripping and then yeah. hang out and all that. Yeah. So that's when um, my friend Michael Dosny, who just passed away, um, who changed my life in many ways, Michael introduced me to his friend Tim Blake. And oh. that's how I met Tim Blake. That was, Tim what, 98, Blake. And that changed a lot of no everything kidding. for everybody. Okay. And I, I was 97, late 97, and we went up and we did our first party at Air, what was not even called Area 101 then. It was just a dump. It was an old tweaker place, you know. It was a yes, mess. I was getting and the stories from Tim. Yeah, just north of Leighton. So yeah. um, uh, that was me that came up there and put on that party. Wow, okay. And um, Gosney and me. And we put on this party, and it was a huge success. And then we did... Well, the party like, kept going. Yeah, we, that yeah. was the first one was like... Um, was that the Gola Gill party? Yeah, the first one was like Yeah, it was so funny people. to hear Tim going, like, the, they partied, and then like it was the next day, and then they were like, still kept, partying. No, I mean, Tim was like not really even into, I mean, he was already he was in, into psychedelics. He was new to all that. But, but he was into R&B. He was, new to, music, he was new to that music. He was just like into like kind of pop hip music before that. Yeah. But when he, this first psychedelic trance experience just blew his mind. Nice. And, and Tim started taking ecstasy, which was never really my favorite, but he really got into the ex, you know. And, it, and and all the tweakers that were hanging out there, I mean, it's just like changed their lives, you know. And um, it, it became quite a deal. And then at one point we called it Area 101, and then I started living up there because I had to put these big statues somewhere. And once you <laughs> install like that giant Shiva Area 101 and the big, you kind of have to be there to take care of them. So I ended Well, you know the one, there. when you get yeah, to Area yeah. 1, there's like a nest, the elephant. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. the story with yeah. that is pretty astounding, right? Okay. Well, is it? Which story? Well, which one came first? The I Shiva know, the Shiva the... definitely came first. Yeah, okay. Shiva, okay. Ganesh came much later. So at Area 101, so if you Shiva go in the back up. where the stage is outside, yeah. the up above, there's a statue of Shiva, the oh. lord of, the, uh, of yoga and meditation and so on. And it's a beautiful stone statue. And big statue. fan of weed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that statue came because we, Nikki and I were traveling in India. Right, and we went to this place where they make these statues, and they've been making these statues out of granite for a couple thousand years. Right, yeah, it's a long family, tradition, yeah. the same families. Right, and so we were there, and we just found this amazing statue of Shiva sitting, uh, you know, and meditating, and so on. And we just bought it. Right. Well, no, the guy gave us a price we couldn't refuse. It was meant <laughs> nice. to be. It was nice. totally meant to be. Try so, the, so try the flavor of this. This is. A, oh, sorry. sorry. That's okay. It's a four kings OG. So when I brought the statue back and it got home in record time, like amazing record time, like a few weeks, it's usually a few months. And I needed to put it somewhere, so I asked Tim Blake, who I'd had these parties with, and he said, yeah, I could put it up there. So that's how I ended up living wow. in Mendocino County from San Francisco. Really? Yeah. 
Because we still had the place in the city, and I was and just he, renting that out. So he was in Indiana. In I was staying back and, in India. And okay. I lived there, and Tim and I got this place wow. after we, we stayed at Area 101, but then we scored this amazing place up the hill. And that is a whole other story. Yeah, that, I'll yeah. let Tim tell that, and Mad Mike and the whole deal. But um, we, Tim and I put on great parties together. We really nice. did. We nice. put on epic I mean, these outrageous... Well, a couple of go these, these, parties. But we used to do, there. like, these well, also smaller, like, 100-people mushroom parties yeah. where I would just make a ton of mushroom smoothie and go out. Everyone would have their cup and get served at the same time, including the DJ, and we'd all trip together. Oh, anyway, those were great. That sounds fun. And um, they were... And, Sometimes um, they'd have a, our own musician like Bob Brelo, yeah. uh, who would then okay. play piano for everybody. Yeah. Bob's a good right? friend of ours. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. all dosing. So yeah. anyway, so we had a lot. Of, we put on these great parties, and that's how I ended up living. And that's how I mean, I had been selling weed since I was fifteen, basically in San Francisco. I'd always been a dealer, but I'd never been a grower. Right. And so that's living with Tim is when I learned how to. Um, how to do some growing, but mostly I took over the trim rooms more, yeah. and I really got into the harvesting and trimming and, and curing and all of that much more. And then after our teacher in India said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I've got these big statues. I have to get a sanctuary. I got to leave the city. You know, I need something. He said, you go now. You will find the perfect place. And so we went, and it's true. I mean, it was like practically immediate. Well, but there was something else that happened. So he says, she says she needs to do a sanctuary, oh, right. and then and then he says to her, "Well, who How can, can you be doing this? You cannot. Who do can this help on your you own. do this? Who can help right? you?" So Nikki says, "Well, I've been I've been a uh, construct I've been a remodel. I would in instruction right. as a remodel. Right? Swami fix it, Ananda. So anyway, he says. So he says, who can help you do this? And she says, well, Swami can build anything. So he looks at me and he says, well, you have to go help her. So right? that, that was sort of his release from India. <laughs> so, so I thought I was going to be staying in India yeah. at that point. Oh I'm all in orange and so everything he got like that. Yeah. Right. And oh, so then he, says, then he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to build a Sri Yantra. Right. And so he says to both of us, he says, do it soon. I thought a Sri Yantra was that Well, figure. this is a Sri Yantra, but to make but it, I built it three dimensional. Three dimensional. 24 oh. feet or square. It was oh, huge. Really? Yeah, yeah, 24 feet high. Oh, yeah. What? Yes, yes yeah. really. really. Was it just an object or was it like a building? You well, can walk inside that's of it. That's a whole other really? story. But it was yeah. open, but you could okay. go inside and look yeah. up into it. Oh, it was yeah. fabulous. No, I'd, cool. I'd learned and, about yeah. it. And actually, at that same time, Nikki had done an embroidery, a very in intricate embroidery of the design of the Sri Yantra with colors and we consulted on colors and did all this stuff on it. Okay. But at a certain point, I'm up alone, up in the mountains now. Right. I've become Swami. I'm just meditating four times a day up in the mountains. Nikki's back in San Francisco. Putting on parties. Putting on parties, taking lots of acid and so on and so forth. But I'm smoking hash up there too, right? But meditating four times a day, hardly sleeping, hardly eating, any of that. And then as in my meditation, I start to see how to build a Sri Yantra. I don't draw it out. I don't think about it. all of a sudden, but a boom. How does this corner go together? I get a flash picture in my mind of exactly how it fits together, and all I have to do then is see that picture, and I can kind of draw it out. So I'm I'm kind of building the Sri Yantra in my mind of how to build it out of wood, right? Wow. Because there's some that are cast in gold, some are made out of stone, and so on. The biggest one I ever heard about in India was maybe like five feet by five feet, or maybe four feet high, but made out of bricks and so on, right? Okay. So I'm getting these visions of how to build it out of wood, because I always love to build things in wood, right? And so um, then, uh, 
bit by bit, I figure it all out. And so then I finally meeting with, with uh, Chidananda in, in, in this town uh, with Sri Mukambika, and he says, uh, what do you want? I said, I want to build a Sri Yantra. And he says, do, do it soon. So we literally flew home. That was in the middle of March, right? And I think the Gulf War was just about to start. We just flew. We got back just in time. And then within three months, we found our land at Turtle Creek. Wow. Right. And then uh, that was what? And then we said there's a lot of big statues there, too. Yeah. And I think that's in Leighton? Yeah, we're up on yeah, Bell yeah. Springs but, Road. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Yeah. but I was in Leighton. In our own private little valley. It's yeah. a very special place. Where, as you know, most places are on the side of the hill and the terrace yeah. gardens down. Yeah. And we have a huge meadow. It's like you go down into this private little womb-like valley. Fun. You have to come up. It's yeah, very, very yeah. beautiful. We take some yeah. acid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so anyway, so uh, then I come up and uh, we start looking for the land. We didn't have the land yet. So in March, uh, whatever it was, 2003, we were looking for the land. And a friend of mine already lived in Leightonville. And so now I'm at his studio and I start to build the Sri Yantra because I want to take it to Burning Man. <laughs> Right? So I got all this lumber, oh. and in the meantime, we find our land, right? And so now I'm building a Sri Yantra up in Leightonville, and we rent this big uh, truck uh, to take it all up there. I, I had sort of units. What so, year Burning Man? Uh, that would have been like 2003. 2003, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, and I bring all that up there, and there was a big camp there. Uh, was it WOW camp that year? I'm not sure it was WOW camp. But now, this whole Gosney crowd, Michael Gosney crowd we're telling you about, they have separate camps. Yeah, okay. we're all uh, right. old burners. Right, yeah. right. And so, um, yeah, that was the second. No, it wouldn't have been. I'd gone there once before when they did the pyramid. Right. I so it was a year after that right. we did the Sri Yantra, right? So I'm out there and I'm building Sri Yantra in the middle of the desert and, and you know, it's going up. But I was at the very, you know how the Burning Man is, I was at the very yeah. outer edge, I was oh. like 1030. Yep. Oh, uh, they used to kick yeah. us off to the far yeah. distances because we did psychedelic yeah. trance music. Oh, yeah, the sound And camps. nobody yeah. wanted that, like, yeah. oh, that electronic music, boo. Yeah. And we had, they would send us way out yeah. into the playa. So at this artists. point, I'm building a Sri yeah, Yantra and, and, and this whole crowd, and so we make the Sri Yantra, it's going to be the DJ booth. Right? Yes. Right? <laughs> so I'm building it there, and I'm, it's, it's the middle of the day. I get a lot of help, and, and at one point I have to make these rings go around, and so I get all the DJs who are going to play in it to help me. And everybody's nice. like, Swami, you got the DJs to do some work? What are you kidding me? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so we build it up, and, and, it's fi and it's finally all together, and it's just in time for, for the night of the burn, right? So we got the DJ booth in, and it's starting to go, and it's in one of the doors, one of the portals, right? But this is late afternoon, we're getting it set up. And lo and behold, right in what would be the dance floor, there's an SUV parked, just sort of randomly parked, right in the middle of what's going to be the dance floor. So I said, well, how do we get rid of that? So I gather all these people around, all these guys, and I said, listen, we can move this car. So we put as many guys as could fit around, and I think there were a couple of girls in there too, but many guys that could fit, and, and we all put, I didn't say one finger each, oh, but I yeah. said, and we literally carried that car for yeah. 50 feet to get yeah. it out of, you know, we have 15 people carrying And everybody said, no, we can't do that. I said, yeah, we can. And so we did. Of course, a lot of psychedelics helped everybody's imagination work <laughs> at the same time, too. So then we get the thing going, and it's night, and everybody's tripping, and not the, it's, it's Saturday night, not the, not the burn. It was just before the burn. And who walks in to the, to the Sri Yantra but Alex Gray? Right, nice. and I'd met him a couple years before at the Boom Festival yeah. in Europe, right? Yeah. And so, and he's tripping balls on something, and he walks into the Sri Yantra. He says, "Wow, 
meter. That's right. Then you burned it, right? Yeah. Well, then, oh, the, well, then what really happened is that uh, then there was a whiteout. Uh, you've been to Burning Man, yes, right? Yeah. yeah. So then there was a whiteout, but the DJs keep playing. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. the DJs keep playing because with the whiteout, the DJs give you your location. You can hear. Where's the yeah. music coming from, right? Yes. And so anyway, Only beacons going, from people. and then yeah. in the end, in the end, I tore it apart and burned it right there. Yeah. So That's we built good. another one yeah. subsequent to that. First of all, at at uh, Earth Dance, yeah. right in the middle of Earth Dance, I built another, and I did some modifications so it's even more soaring up. Nice. And at one point, we have six thousand people at Earth Dance dancing in a circle around the Sri Yantra, nice. which is right in the middle. I mean, this is this pagan ritual. <laughs> They're pretty yeah, out so there. Right? Suzanne Sterling. Yeah. Suzanne Sterling, she's what, it's got snakes on her leading yeah. this chanting. Nice. And so it's like, we're just out there, right? So then I took that down from Earth Dance and brought it up to Turtle Creek. Nice. And it was there at Turtle Creek for many, many years. And we had wedding receptions there. We had meditations. We had chanting. We had all these things. And then one winter, there was a huge rainstorm and a gigantic wind, and it literally blew over. We woke up in the morning and, and the it was down. Just piled like, up. It's so much. It's yeah. No, it's just amazing. A hundred mile an hour wind just blew it over, right? But the very tip we were able to save, the part I, that has yeah, the main the, the stack triangles, triangles and that's, that's still in yeah. our gardens. Yeah. So I salvaged that, put it back together, and then what I did instead is I said, okay, well, there was some sort of sign there. Maybe I'll rebuild it someday, but maybe not. I'm getting a little... But now, the, I laid out my garden. My entire yeah. cannabis garden is laid out exactly yeah, like the, the Sri Yantra. Oh. So there's a plant where there's a right where, where there's a, a, a yeah. Artist, yeah. And right so if where, you're in a drone with an imagination, you can figure yeah, it out. Yeah. Wow. And it's right exactly, one quadrant is exactly where the Sri Yantra was, the one I built. And then I salvaged enough of the triangles, so they're now right at the edge of the garden. Nice. So they're a symbol, and on top of it is the goddess of cannabis. Sitting Ganjama. on top of the Sri Yantra, Ganjama, who's the goddess, of, who's a form of our goddess from India, oh. the, the Sri Mukambika goddess. It just makes me realize she's out in the car and we have to go to the state fair in Sacramento, Swami. Yeah. Do you realize? I think we've cruised through a while. We've had a lot of talking here. Yeah. You've we done did. good. I well, you can edit out, the edit out the good parts. No, editing. No, this just goes up. This just goes up whole hog. Whole hog. How long have we been talking? Um... An hour, hour and a half. half, at least. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. No, actually, probably more like two. Yeah. It's 20 to 7. If you guys ever want to come back and talk stories some more, I would love to. Oh, we that. got stories. And I want to hear some more of yours, though. you got to let, yeah. let, I'll let me interview you I'll tell you my stories off, off air, because otherwise this, it'll be a show of me telling the same stories over and over. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I love true. your yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, that's for me. I, I your stories. Well, stories. I always love to hear other people's stories, and the, I say I pretty much know my story, and, and I, like you say, you keep telling it. But I have to say that was good coffee you gave him. <laughs> <laughs> Only the best. And a good joint. Oh, thank you. This has been really a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. Thanks a lot. So. I'll, I'll post. Uh, I'll, I'll get. Uh, I'll email you for whatever links and that kind of stuff <clears> you okay. want. If there's anything you want to shout out, real quick, this is the end of it. Oh, okay. Well. We're Nikki and Swami and we're Swami Smoke Select. Our weed. I don't know. Yeah, we're yeah. Swami Select. And that, listen, it's imbued with our spirit. Right, we and the goddess that. spirit. We we put the seeds in front of the statue of the goddess of cannabis. We put sacred water from the Ganges on the seeds. We say mantras with it. It's planted in the Sri Yantra. So Swami Select uh, cannabis is really very special. So you can also find us on our website, swamiselect.com, yeah, yeah. and we're on YouTube, smoking with Swami on YouTube. 
You can check that out. We did about 50 of those. We did sessions with Swami, and they're on, uh, are they on YouTube also, something like that? Anyway, and also, just for those of you listening now, we are going to be at the State Fair this weekend as ambassadors for cannabis at the State Fair. It's cool. Oh, yeah. It is far out. Thank you. Gonna, Thank you. I'm going to run it. I'm going to turn it off because otherwise we will keep talking. Okay. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Guys. Thank you. And-